Hello, and welcome to Story and Fiction. This is a podcast of the novel McDowell by William H. Coles, author of award-winning stories and novels, and the creator of the website for writers, storyandliteraryfiction.com. Let's continue with Episode 3 of McDowell. Part 2 Chapter 37 Hiram A jury convicted Hiram. He was sentenced to 25 years for second-degree murder. He had little hope for successful appeals. Without a future, and with the misery of relentless solitude, despair hovered. Life was cruel and unfair. His anger mounted. Loathing for those who had ruined his life persisted. Revenge inflamed him day and night. In dark moments, fleeting thoughts of suicide frightened him, but he stayed sane by keeping physically and mentally active. On the 216th day of his incarceration, while in the prison exercise yard, an inmate shoved a makeshift wire knife into his chest, puncturing his lung. An accomplice knocked him unconscious and he almost died. During his two-month recovery, he knew survival in prison would be impossible. He wasn't perfect, but he didn't deserve this fate, and he began to focus only on escape. He escaped a year and seven months into his sentence, a few weeks after he was assigned to work in the prison infirmary. He walked from dawn to dusk, covering 25-plus miles a day. On his 17th day of freedom, he returned cautiously to Louisville to obtain cash, then took a city bus to the interstate bus terminal and headed south to Memphis calculating he would be on a bus to Nashville by the next day. From Nashville, he bused to Indianapolis. Two days later, he was headed for Carbondale, where he switched transportation to take a train to Chicago. He traveled on the cheapest coach fares, where passengers would have the least interest in him and he'd have the lowest chance of recognition. He bought supplies, a water purifier, a GPS system that could not be tracked, a flannel shirt, jeans, a jacket, hiking boots, a backpack, and two changes of underwear. From Chicago, he went north and west, avoiding civilization, heading for a wilderness where, because of his climbing and trekking experience, he would be comfortable to survive with minimal human contact. Iron passed through South Dakota into Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana. In sparsely populated states, he purchased supplies only in chain stores avoiding convenience stores and family-run groceries where strangers were remembered and talked about. Except for obtaining supplies, he planned to see no one for four months. When climbing and trekking, he'd seen men lose coherence to their thoughts, seen them lose the will to go on, and sometimes accept the outstretched arms of death to relieve them of mental and physical pain and the fear of what was next. He would not let himself deteriorate. He set up a daily routine a minimum of one and a half hours of conditioning upper and lower body, core, arms, and legs. He took long walks, climbing when he had the opportunity for his enjoyment. He packed mostly dried fruits and vegetables for sustenance. He drank only purified water. He had first aid supplies and meticulously looked for scratches or abrasions on his body that might be a source of infection and treated them. He lived off the land to keep purchase of supplies to a minimum. He couldn't easily obtain or risk firearms, and so he hunted with a knife, 
trapped and fished. He carried two paperback books taken soon after his escape from a free table in front of a going-out-of-business bookstore, Aristotle's Poetics and Plato's The Republic, in one volume, and The Tales of Jack London. He would reread them until he could replace them. He had paper and two mechanical pencils, and for at least an hour every day, he recorded details of his past and present. He regularly designed new projects. On an open road, he'd measure his walking and running pace, count his steps, time his progress, and compare improvement. In deep wilderness, he'd create a living space, often only a few cubic feet, with essential materials within arm's reach. He prioritized his needs, concealment, safety from elements and predators, and a view to scan for intruders who might enter his surroundings. He started to outline mental conversations with himself on health care delivery, politics, health research needs, medical ethics. But as the weeks passed, isolation gradually robbed him of positive thoughts and realistic desires, and he counted the days until he thought the risk would be low to move to more populous environments. Chapter 38 Two months after Hiram's escape, and without any success in capture by authorities, Page was determined to be the journalist credited for Hiram's return to prison. Based on her TV coverage of McDowell, she convinced a publisher to buy the rights to a McDowell biography. To scoop the competition and assure maximum sales, she had to talk to McDowell to verify details of the trial, imprisonment, and escape. She was sure that Sophie, as McDowell's favorite child, would be his most likely contact. She had to gain Sophie's trust. After multiple calls by Page, Sophie agreed to see her. It was hot in New York. Sophie's window air conditioner wasn't working well, and they sat in the common room of Sophie's apartment house. Sophie guided Page to two chairs at a folding card table as far away as possible from an older man in Bermuda shorts and a Jets t-shirt, sitting in a pale green plastic lounge chair and reading a hard-cover John Grisham book. Sophie bought two Diet Cokes from the rear of the room, where a brown compact refrigerator sat next to a sink and a microwave on a tiled counter. Definitely a step down from where Sophie used to live. Have you heard from your father? Page asked. Sophie shook her head no. Is she lying, Page thought? She couldn't tell. But probably not. Sophie seemed honest in a straightforward, non-devious way. He'll hide in the wilderness, I would think, Sophie said when asked. He can tolerate isolation. He would not go back to Nepal now, Page thought. Iron would stand out. Besides, how would he get out of the country without being detected? For a few seconds, Sophie seemed lost and thought, How is Anne? Page asked. Sophie gave a slight wince. Anne can't be doing well, Page thought. Could anyone in her circumstances? I saw Anne last weekend, Sophie said. Robert has the job, and she's home alone during the day now. It's hard for her, but she seems to be adjusting. Does she have friends? She goes to church a lot. Not just the services, but group sessions. I went to one with her. She's often too incoherent with her speech impediment to contribute much, and she cries a lot. She hasn't recovered well from the brain damage, but the other ones have healed pretty well. She walks with a walker now. 
Does she hate Jeremy? Paige asked gently, cautious not to provoke. She's grieving for Penny and all the other victims. I think she feels responsible. Not for Jeremy? She thinks she's to blame, at least partially, Sophie said. For what? She thinks she didn't bring him up well. It can't be her fault. She won't believe that. I think it's a way of punishing herself to relieve her grief. Has anyone heard from your father, Paige asked. No. But you've asked? Billy said he'd heard nothing, and Ann just cried. I don't think she'd heard either. How do Ann and Robert manage expenses? They live with the fear of bankruptcy from debts due to lawyers and hospitals looming over them. They can't get money from her trust unless Dad will release it. He said he tried to do it from jail, but he left before arrangements could be made. Bankers won't act on releasing funds without permission or probate, and a lot of lawyers are fighting to be the first in line to be paid before the family. How are you doing for money? Paige asked. I had to sell the condo. Work has slumped a little bit, but I have enough. I send what I can to Ann and Robert. And Billy? He's working in a music shop and making his drumsticks to sell. He sends money to Ann occasionally, but it's barely enough. He has Tasha and Earl to take care of. Paige asked about Sophie's future plans. Portraits aren't in demand these days. I don't know what will happen, Sophie said. A good person, Paige thought. Does she deserve a father like Hiram McDowell? Chapter 39 New York Sophie Sophie fell asleep after reading in bed with the light on when the front door chimes to her apartment rang. She slipped on her slippers, pulled down her nightgown, and went to the door. The chimes rang for the third time. She looked through the peephole, but saw nothing. Probably a hand over the opening. She stepped back. Open up, Sophie. I know you're in there. Sophie hesitated indecisively. Did she know this person? She did not want to be rude, but she was afraid. New York was not a safe place. Open up, the voice said. Who is it, Sophie asked. It's me, June, for Christ's sake. It was June. The voice had changed, but it was June from two years ago. Sophie had forgiven June, and it had helped to forget her. Still hearing June again brought strong anxiety. What do you want, Sophie asked. Just open the goddamn door. No. I'll camp out here until you do. I've got nowhere to go. I don't want you here, Sophie said. Open up, after all I've done for you. Well, you've done nothing, Sophie thought. How could I have loved you? June pounded the door with the heel of her shoe. Stop, Sophie said. A male neighbor opened the door down the hall. Knock it off. Fuck you, June said. I'll call the police. The neighbor yelled back. A woman neighbor shouted, Make her stop, Sophie. Is that what you want, June said through the door. Sophie's heart pounded faster. Call the police, the woman neighbor yelled. Sophie's fear made her indecisive. She dreaded a scene, but most of all she dreaded arguing with June. She had to act. She undid the latch and the security chain. June opened the door before Sophie could pull on the handle. 
and entered, dragging two luggage bags behind her. Unacceptable, the female neighbor said and slammed the door. June parked her bags near the bedroom door before moving to the two-seat sofa where she sprawled out, her back slanted on the cushions so her head was thrown back, her legs stretched out in front of her. God damn you're stubborn, June said. What happened? Navarro threw me out. Princeton Navarro? The jerk, June said. Are you still married? You never married me. I was his consort to the Europe he tried completely unsuccessfully to conquer. He ran with a pack of queers. I spent months alone. We've had sex twice, always in threesomes with another man. Why come to see me, Sophie thought. You can't stay here, she said. I need a place, June said. I've got no money. June had never paid the back rent she owed. I called my old boss, but they don't have any positions. Maybe Taylor and Rankings will take me for copy editing. I'll go tomorrow. But I've got to rest and press a pantsuit and get cleaned up. God, the flight was a disaster. Not here, Sophie said. I'll never again share a bed with you, she thought, or my life. I'll sleep here on the couch. June went to the bathroom. Sophie didn't move. June used the toilet, flushed. She started the water for a bath. Sophie opened up the bathroom door. Stop, she said. For Christ's sake, Sophie, grow up. I've got to leave early tomorrow, Sophie said. Be quiet when you leave and put a spare key on the kitchen counter. I don't have a spare key, Sophie lied and felt bad about her dishonesty and even worse about her weakness in confronting June. Chapter 40 Page Sophie cried. She sat side by side next to Page on a high-backed wooden bench at a table for four at the restaurant. Schnitzel. Clientele were sparse at five o'clock. I can't stay long, Sophie said. I'm so sorry. What's wrong, Page asked. This was one of Page's planned meetings to continue friendship with Sophie, still the most likely link to Hiram McDowell. I've got to find a place to stay. I've been locked out, Sophie said. Paige took her hand. I, I, I don't understand. This woman I knew a couple of years ago shows up and moves in. I don't want her. How did she get in? Late at night, she threatened to make a scene. Sophie sobbed briefly. Next morning, I went to work telling her to leave, but she stayed, moved in. She's been there three weeks. She says she's looking for a job, but I don't think so. I sleep on the couch. She never leaves the apartment. She drinks wine and beer and eats my food. And she's taken money. I've tried to get her out. Yesterday, she put new locks on the door. She sounds horrid, Paige said. Paige weighed the situation. She had a spare bedroom and she liked Sophie. And having Sophie close would be good company, as well as give her more of a chance of knowing when Sophie finally talked to her father. Let's eat. We'll talk it over, Paige said. I'm not hungry, Sophie said, and I need to find out what legally I can do to evict her from my place before it goes too far. Come home with me then, Paige said. I'll cook something light. I can make some calls to legal counsel I know as to what's the best way to proceed. Paige hired a lawyer, 
and help in every way for Sophie to continue to work and get as much justice as possible in getting her apartment back. June claimed her right to stay in the apartment was based on her previous relationship with Sophie. June twisted a possible eviction into a squatter's rights issue involving the building's owner. Sophie still couldn't access her possessions that she thought were being sold by June. Sophie claimed theft, but June insisted all Sophie's possessions were gifts, which tied up all those concerned into wrangling over semantics and related law in small claims court. Sophie stayed with Paige the three months it took to dislodge June. Paige never heard Sophie talking to her father. Chapter 41 Montana Hiram After many months in the wilderness, Hiram was grateful for his years of climbing and trekking experience in harsh natural surroundings. He felt the most safety while camping above 5,000 feet in dense cover to not be visible from the air. Air searches had been stopped, he was sure, but he could not allow a random sighting from a low-flying aircraft. He hunted and fished, and he only occasionally needed store-bought supplies. With rare human contact, he began to talk to himself, out loud almost continuously, sometimes answering back in an unfamiliar voice. The fear of depression and disorientation loomed, even though he continued a stringent daily regimen of four hours of walking, running, and additional resistance exercise for every major muscle. But he was always angry, like lava in an active volcano. Sometimes it erupted in explosive violent behavior after a minor inconvenience or a disturbing memory, with an all-consuming presence that extinguished thoughts and gave him fast heart rates and cold sweats. The world was unjust and he hated those responsible for his misery, Michael O'Leary, Paige Sterling, his co-author for misrepresenting the truth, the board of directors at the Foundation for Withdrawing Support, the College of Surgeons, his wives. Anger consumed other emotions. He was never happy or pleased and thought in dark moments of a fading will to live. He convinced himself he missed no one that he once thought he loved, and he remembered former friends and acquaintances for revenge, always with an eye for an eye. To grasp some feeling of momentum in making a new life, he reorganized his plans for survival at least weekly. Never be recognized as Hiram McDowell, nominated for Secretary of Health and Human Services. Stay away from places where people might remember him. Move fastly among stratas of society, homeless, working poor, and middle class but avoid upper classes where former acquaintances might recognize him. Never leave evidence of his identity or past. Never be arrested, stopped, or questioned where fingerprints or photos might be compared to files or circulated. Never trust anyone with the slightest knowledge of who he was. Establish multiple identities for use when needed. Until a new identity is firmly established, use no credit cards, checks, deposits, or savings accounts or apply for benefits. Look for the safest place for a permanent residence where he could live with normalcy and community involvement without constant fear of apprehension. He wrote daily for mental stability. He believed the bulk of undeserved attacks on him needed complete recall to teach the world what can happen to an innocent man. Chapter 42 
Hiram found a safe cave formed by a rock overhang that was protected from the elements. The cave, buried in dense foliage, the fallen tree trunks and dried limbs and branches that were scattered around would alert him to movement with sound. But he'd come to one of those times when he needed human contact, no matter how brief. He needed fuel for his camping stove and more water purifier, and he could always use dried and canned fruit, jerky, soup, and nuts. Seven miles from the cave, three buildings at the crossing of a country road and a paved logging road were the first sign of human existence. There was a convenience store with gas pumps, a single-room white clapboard church with a steeple, and a flat-roof store building with the words books on a windowless, weathered oak door. Hiram entered the bookstore. Books on recessed shelves lined the sidewalls except the back wall where a metal double door occupied most of the windowless, whitewashed concrete space. The door was padlocked with chains through two bolted, curved handles. Four armless wooden ladder-back chairs haphazardly surrounded a circular oak table in the middle of the room with books and papers scattered over the surface. A vintage computer sat to one side. To the right was a boxy wooden desk where a wizened woman with steel-gray hair sat with her head down. She didn't move and seemed to sleep, only her chest moved with her breathing. He walked to the shelves. He found no system of display. He searched for alphabetizing, but it wasn't by author or title that he could see. He drifted toward a cluster of paperbacks mixed with hard brown titles with faded, torn, and ragged-edged dust covers. No tags or plaques indicated grouping by content. Because he traveled light, bulky, heavy books did not suit him but he spotted a Penguin classic, Immanuel Kant's Critique of Pure Reason. He turned pages. He began reading. Of the division of transcendental logic into transcendental analytic and dialectic. Difficult to comprehend, but damn it, he should be able to understand the contribution basic philosophy had made to culture. I'll work on it, he thought. The woman was still asleep and shifted only slightly in position. Hiram sat in one of the empty chairs at the table and read more. After a few pages, the woman spoke in a raspy, accented voice. To Hiram, it sounded low class, maybe rooted in the Midwest. Her head was up, but her lids drooped. Find something you like? she asked. I don't see the prices. Look on the flyleaf. In pencil, if it ain't there, then it's a loner. This here is more a library than a store, and I get books for folks on loan from the county library in Watertown. Glad to find you something. I go by usually on Tuesday. This place closed, of course. There was no price on the front flyleaf. On the back was marked 50 cents. I'll just buy this, he said. The woman leaned forward, still sitting in her chair, but with her feet solidly on the floor. She had cold, sharp blue eyes. Is that the Kant? Hiram nodded. Now, you won't like that much. Shit, I'm not here for a consultation about what to read, he thought. I'll take it, he said. I won't sell it to you. You're not going to like it. Damn it, he thought. Don't tell me what I'm going to like. I own that book. Why are you trying to read philosophy? Them thoughts are as brittle as a dead wood branch. Hiram didn't want to say he was looking for meaning in his ruined life. He needed to explore the thoughts of great minds in the past. 
He was trying to answer the question of why life had chosen to torture him. I'm innocent, for Christ's sake, he thought, for the umpteenth time that day. My God, I'm living alone in nature without seeing a human for weeks at a time. My past tracking me like a starving bear. He had plenty of time to read. Just sell me the book, he said. The woman stood up, stooped a little. She remained defiant. Hiram's anger flared, and he didn't know why. This woman had a bookstore or a library or something in between, and he'd found a book that interested him, and she was denying him his will. He didn't like that. He couldn't stand arbitrarily unreasonable people. I'll pay more, he said. Will five dollars do? No, she said. You've got another edition on that shelf near the door. I can see it from here. Sell me that one. No. Why not? The woman toddled to Hiram with determination and took the book from his hand. This is ridiculous, Hiram said. The woman pointed to the door. You're kicking me out, he asked. It's a sexist thing, he thought. She hates white males. She set her jaw, drew her crooked finger back, then jutted it forward again, pointing to the door. Hiram didn't like the possibility that he might lose. He took a deep breath. Look, he said, I've gotten off on the wrong foot. I've said something, or you don't like my looks. But I'd like to know why, so I can make amends. The woman laughed. You're out of control. So wedded to power, you can't think straight. That's bullshit. You can't know me. I've got no power now. None at all. You think you do. I've got nothing, woman. You're a materialist that lost his material, I'm sure. But you're right. You don't have anything of value inside, anything that might fill you with joy living, she said. Is that what you dream at that church up the street? Ah, that church closed. God left this part of the country decades ago. Hiram resented the woman. She was physically bland with her age and unkept looks. Loan me this book, then. I'll bring it back. No. I'm honest. I believe you try sometimes, she said. But that ain't good enough. Hiram's anger surged again. Give me a break. I'm trying to tell you something, she said. You're looking for answers. You're a mess. And that book ain't going to help. I won't let you have it. And you're the one to punish me by not selling me that book? You hate men, Hiram said. But he had heard a change in the quality of her English that said she had education. And English well-spoken seemed to add authority to the truth of her words. The woman went back to her seat behind the desk. Think what you want, she said. You're insane, he said. You're not a shining example of straight thinking. Stop thinking about yourself. I am not thinking about myself. You're upset at not having your way, like a little baby. Pull yourself together. This was the first person he'd talked to in weeks, and she was nuts. Hiram shouldered his pack of supplies and walked out the door without looking back. The muscles in his face were tight, and his heart was still beating fast and strong from his rage at the woman's ramblings. She wanted to provoke him for no reason. He didn't really care about the book. He cared about being denied. He was back in his cave in three and a half hours. He wasn't hungry and ate only dried banana chips. For days after his visit to the bookstore, Hiram shortened and often ignored his routines. In a world of recriminations and recurring purges of anger, 
His encounter with the old woman had seemed odd at first, and he tried to dismiss the memory of her and the disdain she'd shown for him. But he kept thinking about her. She wasn't crazy. Weird, maybe. And he objected to her criticism. He'd done nothing wrong in life but live his life as best he could. He'd done nothing serious enough to be so severely punished as he had been. And then to be reprimanded by a woman nobody. So why? And he was trying to regain a life worth living as soon as he could maintain the security of an established new identity. And what did that woman care about a book by Kant being loaned or sold to him? What was all that about? It wasn't about the book. She wanted to be in control. He'd seen enough of that sort of hostile feminism in his life. Bitch. Some loser stuck in the wilderness. He needed to ignore her, but he couldn't stop wondering why she attacked him. She had some brains, damn it. He had to go back to that woman to stop his wondering about her motives. The door was locked. The store interior dark. A piece of notebook paper was tacked to the doorframe at eye level. A note written in magic marker said, Gone for the day. Any store closed during normal business hours irritated the shit out of him. God damn it, what kind of business was this? Everything about this woman turned into painful blisters that wouldn't stop hurting. He trekked back to his hole among the rocks. The next day he left before dawn, unable to sleep more than a few hours due to his fear of the noises in the forest, of the patter of a rain shower, of his own light sleeping snorts. He was losing confidence in his chances of normalcy. His imagination injected him with trepidation. He arrived at the crossroads just after first light the next day. The convenience store was open, but he could not risk a pointless encounter there. He walked off the road for two hours and returned. The door to the bookstore was closed but unlocked. Inside, he smelled the same dry decay and felt emotionless silence as he did before. The woman wasn't visible. The door to the back room behind the desk was closed. He browsed, but he was agitated, his mind occupied with how to engage this woman in conversation. He searched for paper bags that would be practical for carrying when he moved on. He skimmed over titles of health and self-improvement, of history. He picked up a biography of Lincoln, but it was too thick to be a book he carried with him. The woman came into the room and sat in her chair. The coarse smell of fresh-brewed coffee seeped through the room. Without looking at her, he waited for a greeting or an offer to join her, but she said nothing. He continued to browse, now distracted by her silence. She was provoking him again. Finally, he turned. She was unchanged. Wearing the same dress with a high-necked frilly collar, buttons down the front and long sleeves. Good morning, he said. She raised her coffee mug in a sham greeting, quickly setting it down in front of her, her eyes never leaving his face. Paper and books and a variety of broken pencils and uncapped pens cluttered the desk. Busy day, he asked, unable to suppress his sarcasm. That stimulated her to look at a daily planner that she leafed through, looking at only two pages, and then sat back. She didn't respond. She was looking at a book she'd retrieved from a corner of the desk. Can you help me, he said with exasperation. He felt alone, washed with self-pity. He needed something from her, some indication she cared. With what, she asked. He paused. He didn't know how she could help him. 
She seemed unwilling to admit she remembered him. He blurted out the first thing he could think of. A book. I was here before, he said more hesitantly. She laughed. I got plenty of them. Look for yourself. Can't you recommend something? Don't know as I can. Isn't that your purpose? I don't think about it much. But I don't think so. She was back talking in her uneducated, country-born accent. Well, I need something to pass the time. What do you like to read? Aram asked. That's personal, and I don't think I know you well enough to make it your business. You ain't thinking about the Kant book again, are you? I remember you had some burning yearning for that. Why don't you let me have it? I don't understand, frankly. It's been bothering me. I don't hanker to take advantage of folks like you, folks walking in the wrong direction in life. That's stupid, Hiram said. Say what you want. It's the truth you can't see. She took a sip of coffee with exaggerated slowness. He took three steps closer to the desk. What truth? He couldn't fathom why this woman's thoughts meant so much to him. It was his being in the wild so long. He'd lost reasonable judgment about a person's value. He would have never said more than hello to her in the old days. Don't just sit there accusing me, he said. I'm not a nobody. You want to talk, she asked. Well, yes, I do. What other choices did he have? He'd failed to find a competent companion. He wanted someone else, but this was all he had at the moment. Wait, she said. She stood and went into the back room, returning with a full cup of aromatic coffee. This time, no cream or milk. She sat down again. She brought nothing for him. I guess what are you searching for here in the boondock, she said. I'm camping on vacation. See there? You be straight. You just lied. No different than any human being. I've got things I can't tell. That's a necessity in life. Then why don't you just say, I can't say, don't lie. You've got things you can't tell people. You may be camping, but you ain't on vacation, she said. He fumed. She was prodding him again. He wasn't used to responding to the will of others. He brought one of the chairs from around the table and sat in front of the desk. I've got people searching for me, he said. The law? He hesitated. Yes, he said. Was that wise, he thought. Are you a murderer, she asked. I can't answer that. Of course you can. No need to avoid the truth. Probably a lot of folks know. So what's wrong with being truthful with me? She'd slipped back into educated speech patterns. Her farmyard country accent faded. I'm falsely accused, he said. And convicted, she asked. Ah, uh, yes. She stared at him with blank eyes, unrevealing of her thought or emotion, as if in line for food stamps and waiting for her name to be called. He couldn't help himself. He had this great need for her to know. What's wrong with me, he thought. There was real danger in telling her. But he had to tell her something. He felt an inner compulsion for truthful catharsis. I assisted in the death of my seriously injured, unresponsive grandson, he said. Her stare didn't falter. Her eyes sharp now like a cat's waiting for the close approach of a bird on the wing. Euthanasia, she said. I was convicted of second-degree murder. Ooh, that's not good. 
Friends and family turned against me. The woman thought for a moment. So what brings you to this bookstore? I'm writing my memoir. Why would you do that with all you got going on in your life? Crazy woman. To tell the world the truth. Which is? I'm innocent. You caused the death of your grandson, convicted, and you say you're innocent? I assisted in his demise. I didn't tell you he was a mass murderer of children and adults, and then tried to take his own life. That's the truth. And no judge or jury wanted to believe his self-inflicted wound was suicide, that he wanted to die. What do you think you'll find here to write in your memoir? It's not about finding something to write. I want to create something for the world to read in my isolation. I've been without a real human contact for months now. She stood again, went in the back room, brewed more coffee, and returned with her coffee cup and a cup in the other hand for him. Hiram stood and looked at the books on the shelf. Nothing's current, he thought. Pages were yellowed, covers frayed. How do you make a living in this place, he asked. I don't sell many books, but most of them I value more than the pittance they may bring. I make fudge at home that I sell at the gas station store, and the throw rugs my daughter weaves are popular at the craft store in Butte. They bring a good price. She was talking softer and more direct in her educated accent. Hiram sat down again after the woman regained her seat. Will you call the authorities about me? he asked. She took a slow sip of coffee. I don't know you. What difference does that make, Hiram asked. She shook her head. Lord, don't push me. I'd like to make my own decision on whether you go to the gas chamber. Just jail, Hiram said, and they do it by lethal injection now. Well, you'll go sooner or later. I just got to decide whether I want it to be sooner. Oh, jeez, I shouldn't have confided in her, he thought. Really nice talking to you, he said as he stood. Sit down, she said in a demanding tone. I've got to leave, he thought. I mean it. I'm not going to have you back on the run because of me, so sit down. He sat down. I know what you're looking for in books, she said. You think you're a good person, and you want to know why bad things happen to good people. But that's not in books. It's in the living. I've known many like you. They come through here every now and then. Hiram stayed silent. She knew pretty damn well what was constantly bothering him. Do you think God did this to you, she asked. I'm not sure I know God, but I'm pretty sure if he's around, he doesn't think much about me. What else did you do? Just can't be your grandson. You're not a saint. Well, there was a colleague who investigated my lab and found discrepancies. He made a big deal about it. But the discrepancies were accurate. I wasn't the cause. I was head of the laboratory. Loose management resulted in improprieties. Bad things happened that I wasn't aware of. But you had the responsibility for accurate results? Hiram shrugged. What else, she asked. I was the founder of a philanthropic organization for care for the indigent in Nepal. It grew, 40-plus staff, hundreds of millions of dollars raised. I was accused of mismanagement at the least and fraud at the worst. This television reporter seemed on a mission to destroy me. 
I, I don't understand. She found travel funds used but not related to the Foundation's mission. I was implicated. I didn't really know anything about it. Did you always travel for the Foundation's benefit? They accused me of using Foundation money for mountain climbing. Did you climb when you went to Nepal? Two, sometimes three times a year. But I was always primarily on Foundation business. I built the hospital in Nepal for indigent natives, all on monies raised by the Foundation. Did the Foundation pay for any of the climbing expenses? Only once, and it was a bookkeeping error. That was what the reporter kept harping on. But they paid for your travel there, even when you climbed? I was there for delivering care, and I climbed when my work was done. Were you paid by the Foundation? After it got started. How much? $450,000 a year? And you had other income? Academic salary? Surgical patient care? Patents on instruments I've developed? Investments from family money? He'd gone too far, but he felt pride in letting her know what he'd achieved. That's all she grinned? I inherited our family's racehorse stable. We made money on breeding, occasionally on a big win. Seems to me with that much money, you didn't need to charge for travel. It was standard practice for many foundations. This TV investigator reporter distorted the facts, made something not illegal sound like a crime. She said her cronies were ready to bury me with accusations when all the trouble came up about Jeremy. She gave him a questioning look. My grandson, he explained. You seem to think a lot of people had it out for you. They did. Well, that can't feel good. Well, I'm angry all the time. I can't get rid of it. She drained her coffee cup, got up, and put it in the back room. She began turning off the lights. Come along with me, she said. I'll give you a solid meal. I've got to go, Hiram said, beginning to panic by how much he had revealed. I ain't going to be telling no one about you. It's only my husband and my daughter. She'd slipped back into her common accent. Hiram hesitated. I can't do this. He was risking decades in jail, even with parole. But he felt better about talking to this woman. She wasn't special, but he now knew he needed human contact and that he couldn't live isolated forever or even moderately long periods anymore. Jesus, he had to go with her. Chance it. See what she was all about. One thing was for sure. She wasn't as dumb as she tried to make herself out to be. The sun was still above the horizon far enough to provide soft light and deep gray shadows as they passed a copse of trees. What do people call you? She asked as they walked on a worn dirt path through tall hay-colored grass toward a forest of evergreens. Uh, Tom. Tom Blakely. You lie. I can't give you my real name. Well, I guess that's a truth. They walked for many minutes in silence. That's it, the woman said, pointing to a house becoming visible in a clearing among a nest of hardwood trees. Been in my husband's family for over 120 years. The two-story house was all wood and painted white years ago, but now with bare gray patches of surface wood rot. A portico had been built over the front single door, 
two four-by-fours holding up a scant peaked roof a few feet across that had only a few scattered roofing tiles remaining. On each side of the door was a double-hung window with two glass panes. On the left window, duct tape crisscrossed over cracks in the glass. Two smaller windows were above on the second floor. As they walked into a clearing with still grass glowing golden in the fading light, Hiram saw damage on the back of the house with open rooms exposed to the elements on both levels. The walls on the interior and exterior were blackened and exposed beams hung down at odd angles. More than half of the house appeared useless. Fire? he asked the woman. Lightning. We got enough left to live comfortable, she said. Inside the living area was a large room with a wood-burning fireplace with a single glowing log on an iron grate amidst ash and embers. The kitchen was off to the rear in a room that looked like an add-on. There were doors on the left and right to what Hiram thought must be bedrooms. There was a lounge chair with stuffing oozing out a ten-inch slash on the plastic covering. Three straight-back chairs were positioned at a small unpainted oak table. A fourth chair was against the wall near one of the doors. To the side was an antique hardwood weaving loom with foot pedals and a shuttle more than a foot and a half long, lying diagonally on the warp of a half-finished throw rug. Over the fire hole in the back of the room, boards as big as a barn door had been nailed with insulation, attached and held in place by plastic covering. A bearded and partially bald man, dressed in blue coveralls and a buffalo plaid shirt, came from the kitchen. He's my husband, the woman said. We call him Pops. Hiram greeted the man and shook his hand. The man left to return to the kitchen with only a nod and no words. Through the front door came a stocky girl who was three inches below Hiram's shoulder in height. She had brown hair gathered back in a ponytail. Her eyes were darker brown than her hair and with a still water stare. This here is Selena, the woman said. The girl gave an awkward curtsy, as if exiting from a stage at the end of a school play. She doesn't talk real good, but you'll get to understand her. The girl dropped the log by the fire and retreated to the kitchen. This is where we live, the three of us, and you're welcome. You can sleep out here near the fire. We don't have a bed for you, but we have a pallet that will do since I imagine you haven't had a decent place to sleep for a long time. Hiram nodded his gratitude. Pops cooked a dinner of fresh corn, spinach, mashed potatoes with gravy from leftover lamb leg and finished off the meal with a half of a chocolate cake with white icing, a couple days old. Hiram learned about the family. Selena was premature and with birth complications. She was mentally slow with slurred, jerky speech that made her difficult to understand. She never had formal school, but she had been homeschooled by the woman whose name was Maud. Pops, Maud confided when he was outside and away from earshot, had been dismissed from a New Hampshire college where he taught chemistry. A female student had fallen in love with him and made advances that he rejected. The student claimed sexual harassment and sued the school. Pops was let go. Suspicious, Hiram thought. He wondered at Pop's true involvement in such a scenario. Hiram had seen too many of these entanglements at a graduate level. Rarely was there any clear way to know in retrospect the emotions and attractions that arc between people, and to assess Blaine fairly was usually impossible. Maud had taught French and English literature at the college and resigned when Pops was dismissed. 
Selena was an infant at the time. They fled here to family land never able to be sold and began to rebuild their lives and raise Selena. Pops grew crops. In the barn, he nurtured mushrooms that he sold to a restaurant and a market in Watertown. With a bookstore that had been bequeathed by a cousin of Pops, they had an income sufficient to live and pay taxes on the land. Hiram spent the next day at the bookstore writing notes for his memoir at the wooden table. Only two customers came, friends of Maud's who had come mainly to chat and borrow books. Maud introduced Hiram as Tom, as a writer who had come to get away from distractions and finish his book. Hiram said hello and went back to writing. He continued eating meals with Maud and her family. He slept on the pallet near the hearth. He helped Pops make repairs that required two people. They made him feel like a family member. And he talked to Maud about her past and her dreams and her aspirations. And he learned about farming and repairs from Pops. But Pops never talked about his past. And Hiram's anger became less. And he began to think about how he could make a future he could bear. He needed to belong. Chapter 43 New York Maxine Roja Max Roja had no official office for clients, and she asked Paige Sterling to meet her in the deli. Armin Tressler, editor-in-chief of Rothschild Publishing, had hired Max to find Hiram McDowell, who had escaped from prison. Tressler had emphasized that McDowell was the subject of a biography anticipated to gross in the millions. The author was Paige Sterling, and Tressler thought she might be a key link in the investigation. At least two other publishers were planning books on McDowell. Tressler needed to be first to publish, and he wanted McDowell's input and an update on his activity after escape. Tressler offered Max a generous retainer. Max was among the top skip tracers in the country. In an unused furniture warehouse in Brooklyn, she had rooms for computers and files, a manager, an IT woman and a male secretary who had a cubicle next to Max's office. There were also four private workrooms where sourced-out investigators came when they were in town and where all sensitive electronic and paper documents were kept. She provided reports and updates to clients by phone or Internet. She maintained print copies of all activities on file and taped almost all conversations for electronic storage. Two lawyers worked with her out of their private offices in Manhattan, providing her with valuable clients. In her social life, her female partner of 16 years, Teddy, was a city cop who was too busy to support Max's organization. Although Teddy provided advice and access to information that might not be readily available through any other source. Paige Sterling, as the celebrity who had talked to McDowell many times, interviewed him and who had studied his career and downfall for two TV specials over the past three years, would be a key resource. Max sat across from Paige, who was smaller than Max's 5'11", 167 pounds. Paige Sterling didn't look in person as she did on TV. She looked smaller and older off the screen. Still, Paige seemed composed and pleasant, if not slightly distracted. A welcome change from the stressed-out, near-hysterical clients and witnesses Max usually worked with. Max explained what she wanted. The guy murdered his grandson, Max said, nominated for secretary of something. Um, health. His defense was euthanasia, Paige said. You knew him well? 
I've done a number of TV spots on him, interviewed him and some of his family, covered his grandson's murder spree. I could get you tapes of my specials on McDowell if that would help. Max nodded. And the family, friends, and colleagues, would they let me know if their father contacts them? I think they'd like him to be found. For financial, if not personal reasons, he wasn't the best father in the world. Do they support him even when he's a fugitive? Not enthusiastically, anyway. McDowell's wealth is tied up and he's no longer available to get it as a fugitive. They did support ongoing appeals that progressed on huge retainers paid to lawyers. Do you think McDowell will ever talk to you? Ask for help, Max asked. Never. I'm sure Tresco told you I'm doing a biography on McDowell. I doubt that will make McDowell happy. My reporting of his crimes has been truthful, but I don't think he wanted certain revelations to go public because he thinks I ruined his career, his life, Page said. Are you still doing TV? Oh, occasionally, but I'm officially on leave with reduced pay to write the biography. Do you like McDowell? Max asked. Not really. He's arrogant, full of himself, at least before his life crumbled around him. And I think he's guilty, too. I think he should be punished. I like her, Max thought. She's straightforward. Paige would be useful in the investigation, especially since the family wasn't cooperating with any enthusiasm. Why are you working for Tressler? Paige asked. He's paying me well. Aren't police and FBI enough? I have advantages. Better contacts and resources and less restrictions and oversight. You do this often? Isn't it a form of bounty hunting? Paige asked. It's my career. The various authorities aren't well coordinated in their searches. State and locals don't like feds and don't show much initiative in helping. It's an opportunity for me. What makes you special, Paige asked. My approach is straightforward. I look for shelter, income, transportation, and social contact. I'll create a detailed profile. From you, I'd like written material, minutes, notes, published material you have on McDowell that I can't find on the Internet. I'll need anything you can remember about McDowell. He's smart. He won't be easy, Paige said. All the more reason I need you and people who have been close to him. Max began asking questions, writing in her notebook and taping the conversation while they ate. After 45 minutes, Paige seemed tired of the probing and got up to leave. She'd eaten little and left the food. Max wrapped the remainder of her half-eaten sandwich in a handful of paper napkins and left cash on the table. You seem uncomfortable with parts of our talk, Max said. What did I say? You were doing your job, but you weren't pleased. I'm beginning to wonder, Paige said, what role the press played in the many accusations against McDowell. Did the press influence public opinion in ways that weren't justified? You can never be sure, can you? You do the best you can, Max said. I hope so, Paige said. But as I look back, it does bother me. Max wrote down contact information and walked with Paige until they flagged separate cabs. Max said a sincere goodbye. She wasn't sure about Paige, 
Paige was extremely confident, but cold and officious, too. Now she had lost a little of that confidence as they talked, and Max sensed loneliness. Max knew the loneliness of a loveless single woman before she fell in love with Teddy. That's what she sensed in Paige. Behind all the glamour and wealth, long hours without a friend. Teddy and Max hoped to legally marry soon, probably in Connecticut. Max wondered if it wasn't exactly what Paige needed to relax a little, find someone to love who loved her. Man or woman, it probably wouldn't make any difference. Chapter 44 Montana Hiram Each day that Maud opened the bookstore, Hiram sat alone at the table in the center of the room writing notes for his memoir. Bookstore hours were never the same, and opening days still seemed random. The days Hiram couldn't write inside where he was comfortable and could use resources to stimulate memories and recall dates and locations, he helped pops in the fields, or to repair the back of the house to provide protection for the upcoming winters. He was almost satisfied with four chapters that he persistently revised as he added new material. He couldn't tell when he had reached his maximum authorial accomplishment, and he needed advice as to what to do next. I'll ask Maud, he thought. She runs a bookstore, for Christ's sake. That ought to qualify her for some valuable ideas. And she's the only literary, educated intellect around. Pops has been away from academia, and to maintain their existence, his thinking has petrified to physically punishing chores on the farm. He had to ask Maud three times before she responded to his request to read. She never said no. She just wouldn't agree to help. He became more desperate to escape from his fear of writer's block. I'll do it, Maud finally said with a frown, but you gotta type it out. I ain't gonna fret over your scribbles. I don't type with all my fingers. Use as many as you can, you gotta learn. Use that computer. She pointed to the desktop on the central table. Hiram took five full days to get his chapters into Maud acceptable readability. On the day she printed out his chapters at the store next door and agreed to finish reading them, she closed the bookstore for absolute quiet and told him to get out. Go help Pops in the field or Selena carry her rugs for sale to the general store in town. Hiram asked Maud at dinner that night if she'd finish. Still thinking, she said. She didn't open the store the next day. Hiram waited till the evening. Any ideas, he asked. Need a couple more days, Maud said. I need some distance. From what? What you got on paper. What does that mean, Hiram thought. His anxiety mounted, but he didn't push Maud. Her approval was becoming important to him. Hiram left the house before Maud on Wednesday morning and waited at the door for the store until Maud arrived a few minutes later. She said she would talk. She kept the closed sign on the front door turned to the outside, made coffee for herself and him, and sat behind her desk. She told Hiram to pull up a chair. When Hiram sat, both feet on the floor, his hands clasped in his lap like a schoolboy, Maud stared at him, her gaze unwavering, saying nothing. Well, Hiram said, what did you think? But you've worked hard. That's not what I meant. Did you like it? 
Boyd took another sip of coffee, not looking at Hiram now. You can tell me, he said. I know I've got things to correct. Did you get what's happened to me? I want it to be clear. Maud put her mug on the desk, locked her hands behind her head, and leaned back in the tattered office chair. You said you'd read it, Hiram said. I read it, Tom, many times. So what should I do? Maud paused again. It needs more polish. Just keep writing. Do the beginning and end of each section so it has some story to it. Insert a sense of time, maybe. Let it all come out. Then you can revise it. And you need to get it to an editor. Is it good? Hiram asked. Well, there will be readers out there who are interested in it. What is it those readers want from me? What happened? They're voyeurs, mainly. They'll like to see your suffering. Add something salacious, outrageous. That'll solve their needs. Will they see the injustice of it all? You got a lot of why me in there. What does that mean? Hiram asked. You're explaining all things people did to you from your point of view. Well, that's what a memoir's about. Is there anything wrong with that? It's what readers need to hear. Maud poured hot coffee from a screw-top thermos she used between pot brews in the back room. Well, he said with irritation, why not tell them what went down? There are many ways to do that, Maud said. What's wrong with what I'm doing? I'm not illiterate. You're a fatalist, Tom. What does that mean? That you take no responsibility for your life, that things are predetermined, essentially unchangeable. I don't believe that at all, Hiram said. It's the way you write. Did you have any responsibility for the troubles you've been writing about? I did what I could to provide health care for others. But I didn't cause disease or illness or death. I survived the politics of academic health care. Hundreds of thousands of lives changed for the better. But did you care about them, Maud asked. Of course. You don't have a clue, Tom. We love you, and you're a joy to have around, but you don't have any insight into who or what you were, and it affects the writing. I know exactly who I am. I was leader of the most influential group of surgeons in the world. I was chairman of a department of surgery ranked among the top ten in the States. I founded the only hospital for complex care in Nepal, a third world country. I commanded respect of all those who worked for me or whom I trained. I came from a top family in Louisville. I'm related to President Polk. My uncle was a senator. That's not the point, Maud said. And I've climbed all the peaks in Nepal over 8,000 meters, some more than once. I am interrupted. That's not what I mean, Maud said, exasperated. Hiram didn't like to be misunderstood. He prided himself on clarity. Tell me what you mean, damn it. I don't think I can explain it to you, Maud said. Well, at least try. I've been waiting. You don't listen. Damn it, I do listen. You hear. And it's just not about your memoir. It's okay, then? Is it publishable? I don't know. I guess there's always someone who will publish anything. Just tell me what you think, Maud. You don't need to rewrite it. I want to create something worthy. What would make it better? 
I'm not an expert on publishing memoirs, Tom. Maud poured yet another cup of coffee, now lukewarm. You keep working. Get it finished, Maud stood up. That will be the time to find an editor. God damn it, Maud. What do you think? I've told you. You haven't said a thing. If you're satisfied, let it be, Maud said. Just tell me I'm not sensitive. Maud hesitated. Okay, if that's what you want to hear, I'm no expert, but I feel you were trying too hard to expose those you feel have wronged you. You're right to detail the victimization. Even if you are a victim, it seems too much. If you could be more objective, see all that's happened, and see what responsibility you had in what happened to you on so many fronts. Was there anything about you that contributed to this mess? Something you can discover about yourself that will be enlightening to readers and difficult, if not impossible, to discover on their own. It would make the reading more interesting and add credibility and understanding as to who you really are. That's what I think readers will want. I did all that. It's in there. And if you're satisfied, keep at it. You asked me what I thought. I need a prose editor, Hiram said. My writing is all from science education. You've missed the point, Maud said. You need to think about who you are, what you wanted in life, and what you want now, how your desires and dreams might have caused wrong decisions on your way to the top of your career. Take a direct approach to storytelling. Don't let your emotions cloud truths. It's strange advice. Not what I wanted to hear, Hiram said. Maud shrugged. I need more opinions, Hiram said, resenting Maud's thoughts. I can't disagree with that, Maud said. Get as many as you can find. But look inside you, too. If you're really going to be successful and satisfied, you've got to find someone who will provide you with a different perspective, at least some objectivity to the telling. Why not you, he said, exasperated. I don't have the experience or the ability to help. But you criticize just giving what you ask for as best I can. And you don't believe what I put down? I'm trying. You're just not the most unbiased of observers. It's hard to know what's true. Hiram left and took a six-hour trek to think about what Maud had said. He was upset. She gave no praise. He didn't believe her reasoning. He felt as if he should start over. But what would he do differently? He arrived back at the house two hours after dinner had been served. Maud had left a plate for him on the table. The family had gone to bed. Chapter 45 Montana Hiram On a summer evening after dinner, Selena had been in her bedroom. She came out in an ankle-length white nightgown barefoot, carrying a hand-blown glass bowl partially filled with water. She sat on a three-legged stool. Maud closed her book and laid it on the floor by her chair. Pops, she called to the kitchen. Pops came out and sat in a chair at the table. Selena's freshly washed and dried long hair glowed with a youthful radiance. Her round face had a flat, slightly upturned nose with a wide mouth with full pale lips that formed a persistent smile. Her teeth were noticeably uniform, but had spaces in between. 
Her eyes were crystal brown and blunt tonight. They held a certain wonderment and lack of expectation, as if she might need myopic glasses to see the world's demands. With slow deliberation, she dipped the fingers of her right hand in the water inside the transparent glass vessel on her lap, and she began to slowly circle the rim until a sound emerged, coarse and variable at first, but with quick adjustment it became even and constant with a strange ethereal quality. For many seconds she created the sound, her eyes closed, her face relaxed and peaceful. Then she sang. A single tone in perfect pitch with the sound from the glass vessel. Her voice was full without vibrato. There was no hint of the airy, echo-like quality from the head and sinuses of her speaking voice. The sound seemed to emanate from within, rich and full and uncontained. She held the note for many seconds, and then, taking a breath, moved the tone to a minor third above the tone from the glass container. She held it. The minor interval blended as a single tone. Faint overtones flowed, like gentle breezes over still ponds. After many seconds, she raised the tone another minor third, still the basic tone persisting from the vessel supporting her voice. The new interval produced new overtones, thinner with waves more urgent than the interval she had left. Then she went to the octave, still clear, but without overtones now. She created a feeling of energy at rest, not quite placid, yet still full of concentrated vibrancy. She lowered her tone to a major seventh, a sharp tone with energy as an atom's electrons heated to extreme, and then she began to produce other intervals, a raised fifth, a flat seventh, and half tones. The transitions relaxed and measured, and new intervals sustained. At first, Hiram thought she was singing without regard to tempo, but as she progressed, he felt an acute sense of rhythm, slow without accents, but with the changes in her breathing and pitch falling into a pleasurable feeling of progression, of heartbeats, and breathing, sleep patterns, menstruation, hunger, laughter, and of life itself, all contained in the richness and simplicity of her presentation. She continued for fifteen minutes, she unassumingly stood and went back to her room. No one spoke. Maud sat with her head back, eyes closed. Pops remained at the table, his head in his hands. They didn't move for many minutes. Finally, Pops got up to take Maud's hand and led her back to the bedroom. Hiram had experienced entrance into a consciousness beyond language, beyond description, a feeling of unencumbered joy as if he had entered the life force of common awareness without knowing what it was, where it was, or whether it had ever existed in his world of experience. He extinguished the oil lamp and the two candles on the table. He lay on his pallet, his backpack with all his possessions under his head as a pillow, and let his mind float like a dandelion seed in still air on a summer morn. He dreamt without fear, needs, hates, or resentments. He felt a peace he never remembered before. And he hoped for Selena to give him the gift of her compassionate talent again soon. The next day, Hiram labored over his memoir notes at the bookstore, taking breaks to read books from collections on the walls. There had been no clients in this morning, and Maud was reading and drinking from her ever-present cup of coffee. 
Now, that was beautiful singing, what Selena did last night, he said. Maud said nothing. You know, she should sing out in public, make a recording to sell. I mean, it's really cheap to do. Really? Maud said. She's unique. I've never heard a voice like that. Her presentation was beautiful. You'd see her do a nightclub, a, a celebrity? I know, but she could entertain a lot of people and make money doing it. She used to sing at the church before it closed. She deserves more than that. What do you think she wants? Maud asked. I don't think she knows her potential, he said. To do what? Produce and enjoy a valuable profession with singing. And why would she do that? Maud asked. To be successful. But what is success? What do you think that means to her? Hiram tried to block his rising frustration at Maud's persistence in questioning the obvious. I don't know. Admiration for her talent? She could make money. Maud got up, bringing her a cup of coffee, and sat down at the table where Hiram was working. You were pleased with what she did for you. She made you feel good. I was awestruck. She did it for you, you know. She likes you. She wanted to give you something of value, something without strings attached, uniquely hers, too. She doesn't think in terms of success and money. Her world is mostly void of subtle meanings, competition, and maneuvering. I don't see what's wrong with success and money, Hiram said. It's no good if people seek success and money only for their own satisfaction and self-worth. People content in themselves learn to give selflessly, without concern for personal gain, to learn the joy of being human. How many times a day do we do things for others that are really for our own pleasure and advancement? Hiram didn't respond. The bit about selfishness was semantic frosting over an argument about the nature of success not being materialism. Wealth does make a lot of people happy, he thought. Maud couldn't appreciate that. She'd never had wealth, barely enough to exist for that matter. Still no reason not to allow her success, he said. Maud sighed. I'm going to the store for more coffee, she said over her shoulder. I still don't get it, Hiram thought. I've never heard anything like it. Why not let her be admired for her talent? Chapter 46 Paige Paige got a call six weeks after she met with Max Roja. I got a lead, Max said. Can you go? Do you really need me? Paige asked. I want you there to ask questions only you can ask. You know, McDowell. Where do I go, Paige asked. We'll fly into Butte, Montana, rent a car there. Meet me at LaGuardia in two hours. Eight hours later, Paige sat in the right seat as Max parked the rental car to the side of a rough-hewn log store with gas pumps in front. The only other buildings visible were a bookstore 50 yards down the road and a little farther, a church that looked abandoned and godless. Paige stood by the side of the car, looking in her shoulder bag for a tissue as Max pumped gas. I never ask questions without buying something first, Max said. Inside, they found a heavy-set man with dark eyebrows and receding hairline. He wore a white rectangular plastic badge with arrow and black block letters above 
owner in script below. He leaned against the counter, his hands flat on the surface. Uh, you need a receipt, he asked. Please, Paige said. He handed her the receipt. I'm looking for a man, Max said. We heard about a stranger in these parts. Most of the people come through here are strangers, he said. Are there many, Paige asked. A few in the summer, rare in the winter. We know most of the hunters. Max showed her private investigator card. She showed him a composite of photos of Hiram. We're looking for this man. Errol stared at the photos with excessive concentration, Paige thought. Never saw him, he said. He's lying, Paige thought. He recognizes something familiar in the photo. Someone like him, Max asked. All look about the same at that age, Errol said. What did the men look like you did see, Paige asked. I can't remember anyone directly. Been a long time. The man's eyes shifted away, looking toward a rack of motor oil. No doubt he's seen McDowell. Paige glanced at Max. Max nodded to let her know she was thinking he'd seen McDowell, too. Ah, uh, is there some place we could stay around here, Max asked. Might be some place in Butte, Errol said. No place nearer? I can't think of any. Max gave the owner her card, asked for him to call her direct at any time if he had any more information. Paige wanted to ask the man about neighbors, but Max grabbed her arm. They went out together. McDowell's around here, Max said, I'm sure. I want this meathead to contact McDowell. If we see movement, we can make a move. Why is he lying, Paige said. Protecting someone he knows, and I bet it's McDowell. These folks protect their own, and they don't like authorities, Max said. Let's check the bookstore. They walked a few hundred feet to the bookstore. The door was closed but unlocked. Hello? Max called out. A withered woman in her sixty came out of the back room holding a cup of coffee. Are you the owner? Max asked. The woman did not smile. She stopped behind a desk many feet from the door where Paige and Max stood. Max said, We'd like to ask you some questions. Who are you? The woman said. Max introduced herself. Paige stepped forward, saying her name and offering her hand, but the woman did not respond. We mean no harm, Paige said. I ain't afraid, the woman said. She turned to go to the back room. We're looking for a man, Max said. Have you seen any strangers? I see strangers every few days, the woman said. Look at this picture. Is he familiar, Max said. The woman looked briefly and shrugged. That mean you have or haven't, Max asked. Can't say either way, she said. Where do your neighbors live, Max asked. Just Arrow, at the store. You don't have any neighbors? In town. That's 12 miles away. Not that far, the woman said. Max handed the woman her card. The woman placed it directly on her desk. Paige had already opened the front door and waited for Max. They left together, pausing outside after they closed the door. Another liar, Max said. At least she avoided the truth, and she didn't like us being here, Paige said. Max turned and pointed to a boy running down a barely delineated path through the knee-high grass that led to a line of trees. The boy turned at the edge of the grass and ran into the store, disappearing through a back door. You think he might know something, Paige asked. 
Strange timing. He's running full speed minutes after we talk to the owner. You think he's a messenger? He's told someone we're here? I'd bet reward money on it, Max said. They headed for the path. When they reached the woods, the path disappeared, but they headed west, the early afternoon sun and a cloudless sky overhead. In a few minutes, they saw a two-story framed house. Paige and Max went directly to the front door and knocked. They heard sounds of activity inside, but no one answered a knock on the front door. Max knocked again, louder. Now silence inside. Paige took Max's side glance as a command to follow. They walked around to the back of the house. A fire had destroyed a portion of the rear. Near a door on a still intact portion of the house, a woman, less than five feet tall, wearing an off-white cotton shift, sat on a stoop. Her forehead on her knees, her arms to her sides, her long brown hair held in back by a faded blue ribbon tie. Hello, Max said. The woman moaned a pitiful, inhuman sound and cupped her hands over her ears. She's a child, Paige thought. Sixteen at most. A sweet face. God, she's scared. We want to ask you about a man, Max said. The girl cried out as she jumped up and ran into the house. Paige and Max followed through a kitchen into a larger room with a wood-burning fireplace and an oak wooden foot treadle floor loom with a half-finished rag rug in shades of green, red, white, and cream. A late 19th century loom in beautiful condition, Paige thought. The girl had disappeared. The door to the side room was closed. Probably the bedroom. She's in there. Max was headed toward the door. No, Paige said. Paige pointed to the back of the house. I need to talk to her, Max insisted. The woman from the bookstore entered from the back. Leave her alone, the woman said before Paige had a chance to speak. She don't talk good. She got hurt in the burthen. She your daughter, Max asked. You're trespassing, the woman said. You got other people living here, Paige asked. This here is private property. Paige turned when a man in coveralls and a tattered green long-sleeved shirt came into the room. A farmer, Paige thought, wiry and strong. Not McDowell. Put them out, Pops. They're harassing Selena. The old woman has dropped her country accent, Paige thought. She's had education, maybe beyond a college level. We are not, Max began, but Pops grabbed Max by the arm and pushed her toward the front door. The old woman shoved Paige from the back. She's strong, Paige thought. Paige stumbled as she tried to steady herself on the way out. Don't come back, Pops said. The door slammed shut. He's here, Max said to Paige. Did you see that backpack and the rolled-up pallet in the main room? What makes you think it's McDowell, Paige asked. Well, that backpack didn't seem to fit in a home that's been lived in for a long time, or the pallet, and I can feel he's around here somewhere. And they're all protecting him. Paige followed Max into the forest, out of sight of the house. Max stopped her. Let's just wait here a while. See if something happens, Max said. What are we waiting for, Paige asked. McDowell, if we're lucky. But with no luck, we might find someone who at least will confirm he's here. Will you arrest him? We'll have to get the authorities. Should we call them now? Soon as we see some sign, Max said. They waited in the woods near the house for half an hour, but nothing happened. 
Then Max led a trek around the settlement looking for neighbors' houses or other signs of life. They found nothing. Hiram. Errol's son had alerted Maud that people asked for Hiram. Maud sent Selena to tell Hiram, who was helping Pops cull trees for cutting firewood. As Hiram confirmed it was Paige and another woman from a safe vantage point in the woods, he made mental plans to leave. They would alert authorities to their suspicions. A search at some level was inevitable. Hiram began packing his backpack. I've got to go, he said to Pops. Would you check to see if they went east toward town? Maud walked into the room. I'll fix you some supplies, she said. Selena was working a room. Wah! she said with concern. He can't stay here, sweetie, Maud said. I don't want to go, Hiram said. No! Selena wailed, anguish in her tone. Hiram was never coming back. We'll miss you, Maud said to Hiram. We like having you around. Selena slid off the seat at the loom and ran to Hiram, who was about to shoulder his backpack. Maud went to the kitchen to put bread, slices of beef, and what fresh fruit she had in a plastic grocery sack. She placed it near Hiram's gear and went to be sure the two women were not around. Selena was weeping. She threw her arms around Hiram's neck and lodged her face on his chest. Hiram hugged her, felt strength in her arms as if she would never let go. And he didn't want to let her go. And for more than a few minutes it took for Maud to return with the supplies, he held her as tightly as she held him, and he felt the pain of her loss sweep over him. Finally she backed away and ran to her room. Maud returned. I just heard on the phone the sheriff's deputy is asking questions of people who came to Earl's, she said. Within minutes, using his GPS, Hiram tracked north away from any roads. He went from behind the house and avoided any possibility he could be seen from the convenience store. In minutes, he was in deep virgin forest. Max and Paige spent the next day around the bookstore in the convenience store talking to people who came for books and gas and supplies, but no one admitted knowledge of a male stranger. Max called the sheriff. He came with a deputy and talked to people and looked around but found nothing suspicious. The following morning, Paige rode with Max to the airport. I'm pretty sure McDowell was there, but he was well gone by the time the sheriff arrived, Max said. Shouldn't federal and state investigators start a search, Paige asked Max. They won't budge him what we have. I'd hope we'd find him, Paige said. I think we did. At least we narrowed the focus to the north part of the country, and we found one place where he's been, which helps narrow where he might be next. And we're sure he's on the move again. There's a good chance he'll make some mistake and be discovered. Keep in touch with his daughter. Sooner or later, he'll have to contact the family. And I think it would be her. Sophie actually lived with me for a few weeks, Paige said. She didn't talk to McDowell. Are you sure? I was with her a lot. I think I would have known. Chapter 47 Hiram. Hiram spent three months in the Cascades before moving towards Seattle. He needed contact with city civilization for a while to break the monotony that pressed him when he'd been in the boondocks alone for many weeks. But he also needed documents, and it would take time to find the right forger to make the quality he needed. 
Seattle was a prime entrance point for illegal aliens needing papers and far away from where he would eventually settle. He knew the city well. He'd always moved in the upper layers of wealthy society, but on arrival, he oriented himself to the homeless underworld quickly to avoid recognition. He planned with caution. Homeless populations were frequently canvassed by undercover police and agents to find felons, aliens, and fugitives. He would be on alert, orient his days so possible exposure to those who might recognize him or find him suspicious would be minimal. For a few days, he'd scout out the downtown, see what went down, spot the dangers, blend in to be invisible, and always have a plan to escape. He traversed the waterfront and Pike's Market looking for a homeless man he could follow, or maybe befriend, to help him find the shelters that the displaced and downtrodden frequented. The knowledge would allow him to find safe gatherings and establishments where he was less likely to be discovered. And he could also meet people to talk to. He missed Maud, Pops, and Selena with an intensity that surprised him, and he thought of them often with warm memories. He hadn't seen a likely vagrant, and he decided to work the crowds with a little harp music. He sat up on the street on a low retaining wall on the wide stretches of a walk on Alaskan Way near Pier 52, his backpack behind him, a hat out front for change that he primed with a few bills and coins. He stayed out of view from the street where he might be seen by authorities. Tourists moved up and down the walk in groups mainly, with the regularity of tides. But there were individuals, and more frequently couples too. Those were the most likely to donate to his cause. He was playing sea shanty songs, folk songs from 19th and early 20th century. He liked the way the familiarity of the melodies attracted people. He'd become more attentive to pleasing people with his music. And he never ignored that his enjoyment in entertaining them fueled money into the hat. He made $43 in four hours. Not bad, but he could do better if he found the right place for generous givers. He'd move closer to the market. A cop on patrol passed by, seemingly uninterested in Hiram. Hiram made contact, asked where he could play and couldn't play, said he'd look forward to seeing the cop again. He wanted to be a familiar figure in the landscape, not a stranger who evokes suspicion. He was comfortable with his beard and his tanned skin now. There was a lull in the tourist-pedestrian flow, and he took a break, taking a sip from a bottle of water. A guy approached with no tennis shoes and no laces, baggy black flannel pants too hot looking for the day, a faded red sweatshirt, and a tan herringbone two-button wool sports jacket two sizes too big for him. He was carrying a duffel bag strapped to his back with a cane and tennis racket with broken strings tied on. In his right hand, he gripped the handle of a black cardboard guitar case. A baseball cap with a Miami Dolphin logo on the front sat backward on his mostly bald skull. He plodded along laboriously while looking at the palm of his empty left hand and talking to his lifeline in an incoherent but mellifluous tone. That night the guy went to a vet shelter, but they turned him down and he slept on a heat vent near Pike Street for the night. Hiram followed him at a short distance. The next day the guy walked the waterfront panhandled a little, and ate food someone handed to him out the back door of a fast food place. Hiram left. Irritated, he picked a guy too insane to be of help. Hiram went to the recovery cafe and saw a scruffy man who was fairly well put together, but still had the branded look of homelessness, and followed him. He was perfect. Over a three-day period, 
Hiram found places for free food, sites where homeless gathered to sit and talk and nod off, and the best spots to panhandle. He found out where drugs were sold, where you could trade a stolen bracelet or a credit card for food or cash, where you could find in-store bathrooms for paper towels, liquid soap, toilet paper, and plastic bags from trash barrels. The guy even slept in a flea bank hotel one night where there were no identity checks and you could share a room with a stranger, placing cash on the counter before you got a room number. There were no keys needed. There were no locks on the doors. Once comfortable in his daily existence, Hiram found the public library, which held the best nooks and crannies to seek some isolation to do what he needed. Lots of homeless people spent the day in the library, and soon Hiram did too, using the computers, reading, studying news about health, keeping up with new advancements in surgery, catching up on world news, and putting together thoughts for his future travels. He became a regular visitor, always as inconspicuous as possible to lower the danger of someone suspecting or accidentally discovering his identity. He slept near the waterfront where the other derelicts slept, and there was little worry of police harassment. Soon he began to identify the drug crowd. He thought a supplier might give him tips on where to obtain new documents without revealing himself. It would take time to build trust, but Hiram had time. It would also be risky. All successful drug dealers would most likely be under surveillance at least some of the time, and he couldn't afford to be caught through association. With persistence, Hiram found a contact with ties to those who could create identity documents without his ever seeing the artist. With time, he got to know Seattle even better than he had before. He found relatively safe niches to exist in the Seattle underground. He made friends with a lawyer half-crazed and disgraced for reasons Hiram never knew, and a woman high school teacher whose husband had left her with nothing and whose school dismissed her for some infraction that she would not reveal. She'd been drifting up and down the West Coast for more than three years and gave resources on the treks to San Francisco and Los Angeles. He checked weekly for word of his documents and made friends. His days became tolerable as he worked on his memoir and played music for tips. Chapter 48 Seattle Maxine Roja Max Rojas sat in the waiting room at Seattle Police Headquarters until her name was called. She entered a large room filled with desks and rectangular cubicles separated by a white composition board perforated with round holes evenly spaced. Each cubicle had a number in blueprint pasted on a metal pole that jutted seven feet into the air. She went to number five and introduced herself to the detective who had agreed to see her. Who saw him? she asked after introductions. Well, we've got people undercover in the homeless crowd. One of the guys had been in uh, for maybe two months looking for five transits he thought suspicious. He knew all the local permanents from a previous trip into the pit. The pit? Undercover in Seattle that bad? Max asked. I'd never volunteered to do it, the detective said. But this guy, our man, saw a guy looking in good health, agile and quick with a mind, that he thought matched an FBI flyer when he was going through wanted posters. When he showed me the flyer, it looked a little like the guy in the photo you circulated a few months ago. Did he ask the guy's name? No, but he asked for identification one time and the guy bolted. Sighting sense had been questionable, and always from a distance. 
He couldn't arrest him. He had no cause, and he wouldn't break his cover for an arrest in public. Can I talk to you, man? Still undercover, but your guy panhandled near Pike's Market. He taps out rhythms with sticks on a metal trash can to back some guy playing fiddle. Not harmonica? Never heard that about him. You got photos of him as he is now? The detective reached into the drawer. You can have this. Taken about a month ago. It was a distant shot with many figures. Which one is the suspect? Max asked. The detective pointed to one he suspected. A man with a beard and a broad-brimmed hat, no facial features visible. She doubted enhancement would give any clues. McDowell would not be caught because he was careless. Uh, thanks, she said with a lack of sincerity. Do you think he's still around here? I do. He's hunkered down somewhere. We'll take a look, Max said. I'll call someone who knew him pretty well. Keep us involved, the detective said. Max called Paige in New York to join her in Seattle. With his usual intensity about everything, Hiram had learned to play drums. He worried that a harmonic in public might be a consistent clue to his identity. And he could carry sticks and brushes and make rhythm on almost anything. He sought out drummers he met in the underground homeless crowd. Most on the dole and all living hand to mouth, but many were good musicians with all sorts of backgrounds in Cuban, Brazilian, African, Asian, jazz, and Native American beats. Making rhythms pleased Hiram and he actually made money on the streets alone and backing other musicians. Chapter 49 A few days after Max left Seattle, on a busy Saturday, Hiram drummed on a metal trash can for tips on the corner of Pike Street and First Avenue, where he saw the crazy guy with a guitar case and baseball cap he saw when he'd first arrived months ago. He looked the same as when Hiram first arrived. This was the third time Hiram had seen the guy that day. The man hunkered down before sitting in the wedge where the building wall met the sidewalk. He took sunglasses from his pocket and slipped them crooked on his face. The right temple was cracked and barely reached the ear. With deliberation, he loosened his battered white cane from his pack and held it out in front, touching his coffee can for the donations. Hiram decided to go up to him. He sat down and said nothing. The man mumbled something to himself over and over again, sounding like flow from a cornucopia, rocking slightly back and forth against the wall now, his legs bent at the knees in front of him. There was something not true about the guy. When no pedestrians were in sight, Hiram spoke. How much are you thinking about making today, Hiram said. Not much, the man said with clear speech different from his babble. What are you doing here, then? Same as you and I'm thinking you'd better be going somewhere else. The guy scratched his side and pulled out a pen from his coat. He wrote, Please help, blind and hungry, on a piece of cardboard with magic marker. What's up, the guy said, as he was settling back against the wall. Hiram didn't respond. Move on, the man said, his voice aggressive and harsh. Hiram smiled without humor. I've seen you before, long time back. The guy propped up his sign on his chest, his legs outstretched. Is that a guitar? Hiram asked, pointing to the case. What's it to look like? The guy mimicked, sinking back into his no-sanity mode. Sing me a song, Hiram said. This guy is all fake, he thought. 
not like a real homeless person, like an undercover cop. The guy didn't move. Hiram undid the one latch remaining of four on the case. The case held dirty clothes and gloves and scarves, a half-eaten sandwich, peanut butter cup wrappers, a length of tattered rope, two empty plastic Coke bottles, an almost used-up roll of toilet paper, the black top from an ink pen. No guitar, Hiram said. Good for carrying stuff? The guy stared. Someone stole it, he said. You play, Hiram said. I used to. I do rhythm, back you up. They don't calm me, dude. Just make him talk, Hiram said. The guy's face turned intense. You got some identification, the guy said, standing up and reaching out to grab Hiram's coat. Hiram pushed him hard enough that he fell to one knee. He was reaching inside his jacket, taking out a photo, holding it up to compare it to Hiram. I want some identity, the guy said. Hiram shoved him again. I don't think so, he said. He turned and walked briskly toward the market where he could not be easily followed in the maze of stairs and multi-layered corridors filled with tourists. Hey, the man called after him, leaving his junk on the sidewalk and following. Stop! Hiram broke into a run inside the market and exited a few seconds later. He entered a department store. He saw three exits by way of women's lingerie to the west. In twelve minutes, he was on the waterfront. The crowd was heavy. He spent two hours on the move through and around the crowd, and when he was sure he was not being followed, he went to a used clothing store for a complete change of clothes. Another hat. He trimmed his beard to change the shape without cutting off so much to lose the shielding it provided. He darkened his beard shade while keeping it brownish. He checked that he could pick up his new documents in two days. He would leave Seattle. He was sure the intensity to find him would escalate after this encounter. That would be okay, as long as he was elsewhere. It was wise to leave a deceptive trail to focus those who were following him away from his true location. He got his papers, and when he was sure no one was following, he headed south, walking, avoiding major thoroughfares, leaving no traces. Even along the coast road, he avoided any possible sightings. He was headed for Mount Hood in Oregon, where he'd climbed often with Peak Waring and where he knew the surroundings. He could easily avoid most human contact for weeks or months. He walked with little sleep for five days, then sought the obscurity of unpopulated areas. Chapter 50 Winter closed in when Hiram was around Mount Hood. He'd kept to himself, camping often, only occasionally sleeping in a motel paying cash and testing his new identity papers from Seattle. But any tolerance he had of being alone was fading. He always believed he was a loner. He had loved excursions where he needed no one. But now he needed human contact more than ever he would have imagined. He figured out an untraceable way to talk to Sophie. At times, she had seemed more distant than he had hoped, but talking to her gave him satisfaction, and she seemed no longer just to tolerate his calls, but liked to hear from him. In the spring, he headed south toward milder climates where the snow ground cover never lasted long. Oregon, Northern California. But he had to try civilization again, as long as it wasn't dense and without too much sophistication. He admired coyotes, who, through quick wit and intelligence, could exist undetected in densely populated areas. Hiram would seek to belong. 
He vowed to sense when danger of detection mounted and move on. He wanted to be part of society again for at least two years as he began to establish identity in a place of permanency. By May, he had cautiously progressed to the Upper California coastline near Eureka. He traveled with a half-crazed lay preacher and former CPA, Eric Paget, who spent time in a state penitentiary for fraud. Eric had taken on religious preaching on the streets and traveling from city to city. His family rejected him and he couldn't find work, but he had a love of reading, and he was together enough to talk about literature and the Bible without pause. He carried a radio and listened to NPR, so he was always adjusting his opinions on people and things, usually contrary. Hiram talked to him about memoir for hours on end, on walks and at night before they headed off to sleep on their own, so as to not risk attention. Hiram discovered new and useful ways that memoir could be written. But they split up when Eric missed his wife so bad he decided to bus back to New Jersey and seek reconciliation. In the days before they parted, Eric turned serious. I'll miss you, my friend. Think about God, Eric said. Why, Hiram asked. For your memoir. How will God fit into my memoir? Hiram asked. What could God have done for you that would have protected you from your consequences? I'm not sure I believe in God, Hiram said. Ask what does religion do for people, Eric said. It gives them a sense of superiority. They think faith makes them special. Given the exact circumstances you faced, Eric said, would a religious person have had a different outcome? Hiram was irritated by the question. That's pure shit, he said. Might help you find what you could have done differently. I can't prevent evil people falsely accusing me of research misconduct. God wasn't around to prevent that. Where did you miss out in the prevention of those charges against you? Jesus, Eric, you're not making sense. You made people angry. You made them feel belittled, inferior. You lied to them, and they felt cheated, demeaned. If I did, it was their problem. And you didn't care. What's caring? I treated them fairly with truth. But you never really cared how you made them feel. Never wanted them to feel better about themselves rather than worse. You could waste a lifetime doing that, Hiram said. But if you could find out where it might have made a difference, it might make a hell of a memoir, and it's the stuff that pierces a reader with truths about life. What's it got to do with religion, Hiram asked. Religion shows some people a way to live. Christianity teaches selflessness in the main. Charity, forgiveness, love. I don't think I need religion, Hiram said. But maybe you need a different way to live your life. And religion did that for you, Hiram asked? Eric stared with a frown. You know what I learned from religion? And it got me out of the church, away from the fire and brimstone. I learned how selfish it was to live your life in some self-perceived goodness to be sure you got into heaven. What the shit was that? I came to know the message was, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Matthew 7.12 I don't get your point, Hiram said. Just treat people fairly. And you think I don't do that? I know it. You wouldn't be walking in the rain with a dude like me. You say you're a man of God. That doesn't impress me, Hiram said. 
I like preaching, but I don't think God's got his hearing aid tuned into me one way or another, Eric said. Hiram laughed derisively. You don't believe in God, and you preach the gospel on corners and cities brimming with evil? Boy, that's a con. Nothing wrong with that, and I make survival money. That's hypocritical. See there? You ain't thinking right. I make people see different. I don't do no harm. You're scamming people. You make people believe a donation is buying a prepaid ticket to the afterlife. I'm giving them advice about how to live. Donations are optional. It's thievery. Hiram wouldn't let Eric think his words were effective. But under crazy Eric's logic, a truth seemed to be buried. Just think about it for a while, Eric said. Make your memoir better. He thinks my memoir is shit, Hiram thought. Even though Eric read only a few chapters carefully selected by Hiram to reveal as little as possible of his previous life, it still hurt Hiram that Eric wasn't impressed. After they parted, Hiram jotted down the conversation in his notebook to contemplate as he traveled down the coast. Chapter 51 Northern California Coast Olga Steinweg Meets Hiram from her mortgage-free Alba Inn with six bed-and-breakfast cottages, all savoring Pacific Ocean views, Olga Steinweg walks down the Serpentine Drive to the road. Topiaries line each side of the drive to the end, where two boxwoods mark the entrance that opens onto the two-lane coast highway, just a walkable distance south from the town of Elk in Northern California. She carries a handwritten sign in black ink marker on a rectangular piece of brown cardboard cut from a box and stapled onto a stick that she plunges into the soft earth, wet from the early morning storm. Help wanted, the sign says. She's decided to be nonspecific. She needs maid surface for the rooms and a handyman for the inn and grounds and an assistant to staff the desk, answer the phones, greet the guests, and talk to her. She has had no staff now for more than a month, all leaving about the same time saying she paid too little and was too demanding. She is an adequate host, strict on the rules of not smoking, no loud noise, and no parking except in designated spaces. She serves a glass of wine and a selection of cheeses from four to six each day, her happy hour. She smiles and chats with an unmeant standoffish restraint to her guests. Not offensive but definitely lacking warmth. Although she wants more, her guests are never her friends, only pass-through acquaintances. She feels trapped and alone. She has divorced 15 years from a piano player husband, popular but underpaid, who still performs late nights and carouses in the environs of San Francisco. She has two estranged children, an older son in the Navy, and a younger daughter in and out of school who has significant addictions to a variety of substances and practices. Although in America, now 22 years from her native Stuttgart, she knows her manner is harsh and stolid to the whimsical, carefree Americans. She can't seem to engage people, although she tries to be kind and generous. Above all, she values honesty and integrity. She does not tolerate deviousness. When she records herself and listens, her accent in English is guttural and harsh even to her. 
She's concluded her opinions lack pliability to be considered and pondered by others, and her ideas, structured with precision, are in bulk like highway overpasses and make her more masculine than the feminine she wants to be. She dedicates to shaving her legs twice a week and using conditioner to soften the straw-like consistency of her still naturally blonde, short-cut hair. Her blue eyes, she's convinced, should be the bait of her attraction, the color of sky when the sun is high. She walks back to the inn to service the rooms and clean up from breakfast served in the dining room from 7 o'clock to 9 a.m., with coffee available from 6 a.m., all included in the room price. She tries to go to bed by 9 o'clock p.m., but is on call for guests 24 hours a day and often gets only a few hours of restless sleep a night. Her makeshift sign, her call for help, is successful. After lunch, a domestic from Mendocino, released when her employee sold his house, comes and accepts a job at 20% below what Hulga paid the previous girl. The new housekeeper is unattractive, overweight, and silent. All characteristics Hulga does not embrace, but the woman is a godsend in every other way. She works hard, never complains, takes life with serious attention to what she feels is right or wrong. And the next morning, a man applies for the handyman position. Bearded face with sharp eyes, good teeth, wiry but strong, and dressed like the homeless that drift up and down the coast seeking sympathetic weather. But he is clean, the skin on his hands is toughened, but without cuts or sores. He is a vagabond, he says, in grammatical English. She likes this, with its promise of education and at least some thoughts toward the value of beauty and appreciation of art. He says his name is Bill Mason. She does not believe him, but it makes no difference. She assumes he has reasons for an opaque pass and a false name, and she will not pry. But he is not common. He has an aristocratic walk and the quick, sure movements of an athlete. No, he doesn't have an address or a post office box or references or even a phone. But he says he's a good worker, ready to pause for a while from his journeys. Here and there, he says, when she asks him where he's been. She now is sure he is homeless and wonders if he has committed crimes that make him shun society and humanity and authorities. But she is desperate and confident she can quickly detect dishonesty or idleness in his character. But is he violent, a thief? So far, she detects nothing to even suggest it. For the next week, Bill Mason comes every day at 8 o'clock a.m. and leaves at 5 o'clock p.m. He trims the grounds, repairs the cottages, strengthens a spot of eventual erosion on the cliff edge, and constructs an attractive restraining fence to protect guests from a 200-foot drop to a rocky beach. After two days, he comes into the inn to help clean up after the breakfast crowd. And he begins staying later in the day without request from Holga, taking luggage from cars to cottages at check-in and the reverse on check-out. He is off on the weekends, leaving Friday afternoon after requesting respectfully his week's pay in cash. As a vagabond, she would expect him to drink, but she never sees him with alcohol, nor does he smoke. She doesn't know where he takes his meals or where he spends his nights. And he brings his own lunch in a white paper bag she knows is from the deli in the convenience store in town three-quarters of a mile to the north. Soon, when Bill is working and Hulgus takes a break from her duties, she talks to him. He works on, responding to her with pleasing questions and almost always agreements. He is very smart, and he knows a lot. 
He's been to Germany and many parts of the world. He speaks a few German words and knows French well. He is copacetic with her views on health, conditioning, and diets. He compliments her reduced-fat, low-calorie, leafy, and colorful fruit and veggie breakfast for guests. He agrees with the changes she's proposed for improvements in the inn and even makes suggestions. She tells him about her dreams of working for conservation when she retires, and she will retire soon. She's quick to inform and sell the place. It is hers, worth more than $2.5 million on pristine coastal cliff property, and that is a low estimate since it was appraised four years ago. There are forests to be saved and species to be preserved. Save the cone-billed brown tanager, too, unique to the region. She wants to persecute those lumbermen illegally logging redwood cedars and sequoias. Now, each day she awakens to thoughts of her desirability as a woman. She starts wearing shoes, not sneakers. Her clothes have always been fresh and clean every day, but she starts to press out wrinkles for a smooth, more elegant look. She becomes acutely aware of color and stands before the full-length mirror on the back of the bathroom door matching shades of primary and complementary colors to her hair, skin, and eyes. She makes a trip to San Francisco to buy new clothes, but she never knows if Bill appreciates her efforts. She believes she has physical characteristics that attract men, but they are rarely uncovered. She must adapt. She is health and exercise conscious. She is heavy set, but without excess fat although she had carried some middle-aged inherited thickness to her thighs, glutes, and upper arms. Her breasts are her strong point, admirably firm for her age and without skin blemishes. She has pink areola with well-proportioned nipples, succulent in appearance, she thinks, with a flush of embarrassment when the idea pleases her. Her nipples respond to give pleasure to men when stroked. She has seen that on occasion, although she is usually only excited by self-stimulation. She is careful to avoid sun tanning on her skin, so she has no bra or halter lines. She wants to display cleavage. She experiments with as modest as possible overabundance and revealing at the same time. She adjusts buttons downward on one of her favorite dresses. She buys a sweater. Usually she wears Irish wool knits, but she buys thinner and more alluring fabrics of cotton and polyester mixes. In the new sweater, she is proud of her feminine, unenhanced fullness and the way her graceful paired glands sway when she leans over or turns to one side. Sehr gut. She begins to look for a sign that Bill appreciates her efforts, but she is never able to tell. On a day she knows he will come to clean the breakfast dishes from the tables in the dining room, she plans her seduction. Her bedroom is in the back of the house with a door that opens onto the kitchen, installed for convenience to quickly prepare for guests. She awakens early, does her routine chores, and at the time Bill comes to help stack the breakfast dishes, she showers and dries her hair. She leaves the door to the kitchen open, as if accidentally, and she positions herself in the bathroom so the full-length mirror reflection is unavoidably visible to anyone looking through the open door from the kitchen. She waits, her fresh, unclothed image fully captured in the mirror. She poses with one foot up on the toilet and dries herself repeatedly, waiting for the sound of Bill entering. But he does not come into the house until after nine o'clock, well after she has dressed in a wash with shame and humiliation at her inane impulses. But the next day she does the same thing and feels she's beginning to make her position in the mirror feel more natural 
casual and appealing for Bill's discovery of her strongest, most attractive features. But two more tries result in no success. Bill doesn't arrive when she expects him. The weekend comes and she doesn't expect Bill, but on Monday she tries again, now determined. And her timing is perfect. Bill enters the kitchen with the dishes. The door to the bedroom is open with a full view of the mirror that she has filled again with her nude side view. She knows Bill sees her, but she will never see his reaction because she keeps her head down so it wouldn't look as if she were aware of his glimpse. He leaves the kitchen and she rushes to close the door. She's not satisfied. He has left so fast. But did he see her? At first, she reassures herself his glimpse can only accentuate his appreciation of her as a woman. But then she sees no change in him throughout the day, not the slightest indication he saw or was moved by her body, and she feels shame and foolishness again. Weeks go by. Olga still yearns to spend time alone with Bill, share leisure time to get to know each other better. He's a loner, so much like her. Even after her debacle, she has convinced herself he must like her at least a little. After all, he's still around. He must need someone, and she concentrates on making that someone her. She thinks she's in love. She imagined the joys of a love affair she's known only in books and in the movies. She wants to meld the souls of a man and woman into one joyous union. Of course, she knows nothing is ever pristine, but it doesn't stop her from seeking Bill's interest. She has never seen a man so polite, considerate, industrious, strong, dependable, even with his ragged dress and unkempt beard. She ignores that he's never said an impassioned word or made an ardent gesture. But she is convinced he is amorous in ways that, because of his life's burden, he's learned to cloak. But even with his reticence, she is certain he is vulnerable with need that he does not recognize. Vulnerable to discover the attraction of his life that will bring him the fulfillment he must have always wanted. Since she has no help, Olga hikes four or five times a week in the foothills and up and down the coast. On the Friday of his ninth week of work, she asked Bill if he would like to trek Sunday afternoon into the hills for miles along vistas of the coast. He could stay at the inn for the weekend, sleep in the still unfinished cabin near the road if he liked. They could start in the National Park, then walk through the Pygmy Forest, and then onto private land that has a private trail she has discovered and has told no one else about her own private sanctuary. Bill hesitates before thoughtfully agreeing. It will be fun, she says. Bill nods slowly, and she fears he is not enthusiastic. But he did agree. And she must remember his nature is shy restraint. It makes her love him in a way a mother loves her firstborn, and the way a maiden craves her Adam. On the trail, he is sure-footed and determined to a brisk pace. After two hours or so, she falls behind by twenty yards, her pulse up and her breathing quicken. Wait, she calls to him and stops to recover. He turns, waves, and comes to her. She takes out a container of face powder, dabs her cheeks and neck with a small puff. You okay? he asks. She smiles and blurts out more than she wants to reveal. My face gets these horrible blood red when I'm active. I can't stop it. My Deutsch origins, I think. She smiles apologetically, thinking she has spoiled some sweet image she hopes he holds over when he is not with her. 
Her yearning to please him as a woman has become her only preoccupation. She needs to please him to turn his heart receptive to all she has to offer. Should we turn back? Bill asks. Don't you like it here? She thinks. Like to be with me? She almost says. She fears her accent is too strong. It gets that way when she's stressed. It's not that, Bill says. Shouldn't we be there when the guests start to arrive? She imagines concern in his voice and feels a measure of comfort that he seems to care. Oh, no, she says. Antoinette will take care of it. I have a surprise. He smiles, but it's more subdued than she would have liked. Really? Just a half mile or so, she says. We have plenty of time. Early that morning in the light of dawn, leaving the morning duties to her newly hired assistant, Olga had trekked to a favorite clearing in a dense forest, a naturally reforested clearing near a stream trickling down from the surrounding foothills. There she stashed a luncheon in thermal containers and protective wraps. Let's go when you're ready, he says. It's my face, she says, looking at him earnestly. You look just fine, he says. It doesn't look bad, really, he adds. Her heart soars. Because the trail is narrow, they must walk in single file, but he keeps a slower pace so she can stay close to him. In less than twenty minutes, she touches his arm and leads him off the trail through a dense patch of evergreens to an open circular clearing no more than sixty feet across with tall, ripe, wheat-colored grass and two fallen logs, one almost hollow from decay, a spot cleared by loggers for camp more than a century ago. Olga loves the light here, warm and yellow, the trees casting blue-green shadows. She looks to see if Bill's feelings are her own. She is not sure, but he seems content. She is exhilarated by their arrival at her chosen hideaway and by their being together. She directs him, with both hands on his arms, to sit on the log more freshly felled. From her hollow log, she removes her surprise luncheon and a linen tablecloth that she drapes over the log between them. She places her stash piece by piece on the crest of the log, breed cheese, cheddar wedges, Belgian crackers, seedless red grapes, Rainier cherries, chocolate truffles. She opens a split of Vive Clicquot. She uses two plastic cups, afraid to bring the costly flutes from the inn. Beautiful, Bill says. He seems to like the cherries best. Do you like the food? Olga asks. It is very good, Bill says. Do you cook? Buy special cuts? Fresh produce? Enjoyed food when the preparation is done to perfection? I've had the most expensive of cuisine, Bill says, but I never paid attention to what I thought was best or why it was considered special. But you've shown me something I'll not forget today. He is so polite, she thinks. Do you like the champagne, she asks. Yes, yes, I do. I don't drink normally, but this is special, Bill says. Is it because of religion? Is not drinking, she asks. My line of work, he says. What do you do? Whatever's available, he says. She refreshes her glass of champagne. His is barely touched. She raises her glass in the toast. Prost, she says, and smiles. He matches her gesture. They sit silent among the rustle of sparrows and leaves and the call of a lone warbler high in the giant cedar. The air is still around them, but a gentle breeze rustles the forest canopy above them. After some time, Holga says, would you like to lay down on the grass? It's dry here, 
a perfect place to rest. He smiles and begins to pick up. She worries about her suggestion of lying on grass together. She wonders if he's offended. Did you like my lunch? She asks hesitantly. I did, Bill said. Really? Really, he said. And she believes him, but she worries because she wants it to be true so bad. That night she is in bed. The only light seeping through shuttered windows on the ocean side is a half-moon hovering among a bed of protective stars. She thinks of nothing but her humiliation, asking him to lie down. God will punish her for her false pride, she has no doubt. She has never been attractive, never. Not in her fervid days of youth, or the wretched days of her marriage, or now in her declining years. God, what was she thinking? And she cries for herself cries for her lonely, unfulfilled existence. And then, God forgive her, she nurses the injustice of who and what she is. She is racked with hunger now, but her stomach is too nauseous to hold food. Her mind is trapped in self-pity, so she can think of nothing but the empty, painful void inside her. There is a knock on the door. A man slips into the room. She can tell by the ease of his movements it is Bill. She throws back the cover, pulls her nightgown back down over her knees, and prepares to get out of bed. Stay there, Bill says, sliding a wicker armchair from near the door closer to her bed. He sits. She wants to know why he is here, but is afraid her voice will reveal her anguish. She lies back and pulls the covers to her chin. Mrs. Steinweg, he begins, don't you remember? It is my maiden name. She is irritated that he forgot. My former husband was a Mancusi. She knows her voice is laden with her sadness. Miss Steinweg, he says. His hand finds hers under the quilted cover. She wants him to call her Hulga or a honey bear or poopsie, anything that hints of endearment, but she says nothing until the silence separates them like a meat cleaver through a ham bone. I must leave, he starts. She loses all her confidence, her will to go on. Now? Tonight? Soon. She moans softly. Stay a little longer. I have to move on, he says. My God, she never allowed herself to think he would leave. Easy it. It's nothing you've done, Holga. It's the first time he calls her Holga, and she hears compassion that may hold a touch of desire. There is the sound of a squirrel on the roof of the kitchen, the toilet constantly refilling to the cutoff because of the slow leak in the rubber stopper in the tank. I've come to really like having you around, she says. I would miss you. She wants to cry. Why can't he see her need, share her attraction? But she holds back tears. She is strong. She'll face this rejection head on. After all, he's a vagrant. You are an amazing woman, Holga, he says. Her mind jerks with surprise. What? Is he mocking me, she thinks? Maybe not. He sounds sincere. You're attractive, intelligent, and most of all, you're kind, Bill says. I thank you for all that you've done for me. She cannot hold back tears. He moves the chair closer to the bed, reaches under the cover to find her hand. He turns to rest his elbow on the bed where he can be comfortable. His touch is soft and relaxed. She matches her tension as best she can. My God, 
Is he repulsed by her callousness? She resists pulling her hand away, not to worry. He is no stranger to the callousness of hard work. Would you miss me? She asks softly. Very much, he says. You've filled the loneliness that haunts me when I travel. Is there a chance he might like me, she thinks. Do I dare ask? She holds her breath for a few seconds, dreading humiliation. He seems like a gentleman. Do you find me attractive, she says. He doesn't answer as quickly as she would have hoped. You are attractive, Holger, in body and soul. My goodness. She is emboldened by his kindness, even if not completely truthful. He liked her enough to say it. She feels the warmth of a smile, although her face barely moves. It is too dark for him to see. Then she feels a touch of unwanted shame at how much she wants him to like her, to love her. He must not see her need. She pulls the coverlet up to her nose. She wouldn't survive the mortification if he laughed at her. She'd reveal how desperately she needs him. Silly, it's too dark to see details now. A cloud layer has blotted out the faint new moonlight that had filtered through the small skylight above the bed. Her heart wouldn't slow down. Am I attractive enough? Do you want to make love to me? She asked, her voice muffled by covers. She almost hopes he would not hear. He might spurn her for a ridiculous question. What does he think? His hand still covers hers beneath the sheets. She waits for a squeeze, a stroke, a sign of affection to relieve her tension. She imagines his conquering his struggles to not reveal the depth of his feelings, and once released, he would reach out and emerge into her with the joy of union. But he does not move or say anything for many seconds. Then he lets her hand go. Don't go, she says desperately. In the name of God, don't go, she thinks. I'm not leaving, he says. He stands and undresses, places his clothes on the chair. He walks to the other side of the bed and slips under the covers to take her in his arms from behind. Now she is terrified. It's been years since she's had a man. And in her marriage and years after, she never felt she satisfied a man the way other women boasted. My God, she thinks, what must I do? What does he want? Should I take him in my mouth to stimulate him? She's never done that. The thought repulses her. But she'd do it to please him. She'd do it if it would hold him to her. Relax, Bill says, and she obeys. He holds her still gently, but tighter. It is minutes before he touches her softly, tenderly in tender places. He does care, she thinks. How gentle he is, how considerate. She feels his arousal. He kisses her. She savors the devotion he offers. Her heart slows a little as he lifts her soul into the warmth of a summer sky. Then as he continues his exploration, her heart races again. She does not think, she feels. And she refuses to admit a fear of loss if it never happens again. A fear that hides in her heart that is filling with escalating joy. She surrenders willingly, with thankfulness, and with bliss at being alive. He is exhausted beside her his arms still encircling her waist, her nightgown in a snarl. She knows her face is flushed from exertion, but she does not turn away. She smiles at him. She feels worthy. She cannot allow herself to believe he wants to marry her, to be together for the rest of their lives. But the thought will not leave. 
and she marvels that she does not feel violated as she always had before, and she is not sore from the tension and resistance she has always faced after penetration. Was it good? she asks. He kisses her. Are you going to leave? He kisses her again. She fears a yes. He says nothing. But will he at least stay until sunrise? She prays to God it will be longer. The next day, Hiram works after breakfast in the dining room for all the guests. In the kitchen, the sink is leaking. Hiram works to upgrade the poorly functioning S-trap with the P-trap. He felt very comfortable with Hulk last night. He admired her toned body and her stolid, if not attractive, features. And he knew her loneliness, which was not her fault. She still carries her old-world upbringing, a more than modest guttural accent. Yet she is not unreasonable or opinionated. She loves nature. She works hard at precision and cleanliness to please her guest. Hiram is determined to stay. The end guests come into the dining room for breakfast. Olga gathers fresh vegetables and fruit from her small garden near the edge of the property. He hears four of the six guests clearly. It was mysterious. Two men came at breakfast to question the guest, a woman says. Here, another asks. No, in Eureka days ago. They were looking for an escaped murderer. I forgot his name. They had pictures. Ask if anyone had seen him. They thought he might stay in bed in breakfasts or motels. Last he'd been seen was in Seattle. Had anyone seen him? No, but they handed out cards and pictures. Have you seen anyone suspicious? She must have included everyone in the room in the question. There were a number of no's. You were scared? A new voice asked. Not of the men, the original voice said, but there is a murderer on the coast, and there are not that many places to stay. After he knows investigators are near, Bill stays only three more days, working until dinner and eating with Hulk in the kitchen and taking her to bed when the front door of the inn is locked for the night. In the morning, Hulk asks, Will you stay? She pauses. Please stay, Bill. Eventually I must go, he says the next morning. He adds, I don't want to leave Hulga. Then why? It's not you. It's the life I've been dealt. I'm wanted. Is he a criminal? But it makes no difference to Hulga in the face of her love for him, and she will always believe his attraction for her. On the third day, she doesn't ask about his leaving. She doesn't have time. He is up and dressed, while she still holds on to a feigned, dreamless sleep. He kisses her closed eyelids. She acts as if just awakening, slowly recovering, but she's been thinking about Bill all night, dreading his departure. Goodbye, sweet Hoga, he says. I'll miss you. And it's true. He sees the goodness and caring in the hard exterior of a woman matured through a foreign society who shunned her as a friend and never respected her honesty and work ethic. She gasps and weeps softly. I'll never forget, she says. Bill leaves out the front door of the inn, past guests who prepare morning coffee from a silver urn on a side table with a framed mirror against the hall wall. Hulga follows him to the door, her bare feet denting the pile in the oriental runner, unconcerned that her guests might see through her sheer nightgown. She watches, her shoulders sagging against the door jamb, as Bill walks down the drive carrying his backpack on his right hand. Where the drive meets the road, he stops shoulders his pack, and then disappears to the south.
The same morning, in a mixed state of sorrow and spirit-lifting ambition, and after the guests have departed, and she has checked the maid's work in the guest rooms, Olga makes a sign like the sign that brought her bill, a cardboard rectangle on a wooden stick. It says, For sale, by owner. She dresses in a colorful, attractive frock, wears a bracelet and two rings, pulls on hose and squeezes into low-heel red pumps. She combs her hair and pulls back strands from each side of her face with bobby pins. She begins to dream about her campaign to save the environment, sad that she has no photos of Bill Mason except a cell phone shot as he carried baggage for guests, but that didn't show his face. Hiram went south to Los Angeles, but living there wasn't as friendly as places he'd been. Many of the homeless were criminals as opposed to mentally ill or financially strapped, and you spent time protecting your possessions and your life. He moved on to Phoenix, where he stayed for two months. He saw no evidence that local or federal authorities were looking for him. He continued to Santa Fe and began to feel he was in no immediate danger, that the focus of the search was still on the West Coast and the intensity of the pursuit was decreasing. Chapter 52, New York, Page. Page interviewed both Billy in Denver and Ann in Louisville for the biography. Billy had done well in the music store, where he was now half owner, and was proud of the success of his drumstick-making business, which turned a profit. He smiled and said, I'm my only employee, and my only overhead is buying small amounts of wood. Tasha was pregnant with their third child, they lived in a modest house in the suburbs. Billy had had no contact with his father, he said. Paige wasn't sure she believed him, but she knew he would never tell her. He seemed to blame the media and Hiram's colleagues more than Hiram for Hiram's troubles. Paige made an appointment to see Anne at her home. Robert was working, Anne said. Robert was still on probation after his convictions for security fraud but had been hired as a low-level analyst in a securities firm headed by a college roommate. Anne had memory loss from her injuries and was not the woman Paige remembered. She wouldn't discuss Jeremy and became agitated when Paige asked even tangential questions about him. She was obviously depressed, her speech hesitant, her mind drifting from the topic under discussion, her movements slow and often without clear purpose. She was void of anger, it seemed, and consumed with pity and self-recrimination for her plight. Her anxiety seemed pervasive, as if she feared any attempt to act in any circumstance that might result in pain and disaster. Paige wondered if she'd survive. She thought Anne was religious now, and probably too afraid to take her own life, but she might just fade away like a muddy puddle in the sun. In New York, Paige continued to see Sophie regularly. She still enjoyed being with Sophie and admired her intelligence and drive. She found Sophie thoughtful and compassionate, but lonely. Her creative drive was overshadowed by her portrait photography, which had few artistic opportunities. Sophie had lost all the passion for discovery and catching the unique images that she'd so successfully captured in her series on the plight of women in Chicago and Asia. She needed to move on. Paige thought photographic journalism would be perfect, and she planned to suggest it carefully, without seeming pushy. 
Max Roja insisted Paige find out how Hiram was contacting Sophie. Max had no doubts he did it regularly. On a weeknight, Paige met Sophie in the sushi restaurant they had enjoyed twice before. They sipped Sauvignon Blanc by the glass after they ordered. How's the biography coming? Sophie asked. She held up her glass to the light to appreciate the color. I'm discouraged a little, Paige said. I have huge gaps still, and I'd love to know the details of your father's activity over these last two years. He would never reveal that. It would mean his capture. Not necessarily, Paige said. Max Roja knows he's on the move, but has no idea where he might be, even to search for him. They sat in sounds for seconds, neither looking at the other. Have you heard from your father? Paige asked. Of course not, Sophie replied curtly. Why do you keep asking? If I could just talk to him. For your friend, the skip tracer, Sophie asked. That's not fair, Paige said. She's constantly contacting me. She says she's calling on your behalf. I meet with her for consultation. She's not really a friend, Paige said. You still want him caught, don't you? You believe he's guilty on all charges. Illegal and improper, Sophie said. No, I'm not sure anymore, Paige said. The more I write, the more I'm beginning to think your father made mistakes, but that he's not a criminal. You believe he's guilty of Jeremy's demise, Sophie said. You said you could never forgive him many times. You've said that too, Paige said. That doesn't mean I don't care for him, Sophie said, and I'm not sure anymore. After I've seen what Jeremy did to people over time, the news continues to detail the pain of the families. It haunts me, and Anna's destroyed. But you think your father should be punished, Paige asked. Sophie stared directly into Paige's eyes. I don't want to be the reason he's caught. You've been against taking a life, Paige said. What's made you change? I'm still against capital punishment and abortion, war. But Dad had special circumstances. The murders, Jeremy's suicide attempt, Jeremy's living in hell if he became conscious. And you believe that makes him innocent? Paige asked. I don't know, but I don't think what he did was evil, that's all. But you didn't believe that in the trial. I told the truth of what I knew, nothing more, Sophie said. I didn't make judgments. You said that Hiram said Jeremy should be put out of his misery, Paige said. I don't remember the words exactly. That's in the trial transcript. It's public. Well, there were circumstances, Sophie said, her voice hesitant. Paige reached across the table and touched Sophie's hand that was gripping a knife handle. I'm not accusing Sophie. I'm trying to understand what's changed you, Paige said. Sophie released the knife from her clenched hand. Really, I didn't mean anything by it, Paige said. What has it got to do with the biography? Sophie asked. You're the only one I depend on for judgment on your father's purpose, especially if I can't talk to him. I don't think it was premeditated now, do you? It was not premeditated, Sophie said loudly, and she looked left to right to see if the patrons at other tables had heard. She was vacillating between her suspicion of her father's guilt and her growing need for him to be innocent. I think he was devastated by our talk about Anne on that day, she said. His action was justified then because of what Jerry did to the family and himself, Paige asked. Is that what you believe now? 
I told you, I don't know, Sophie replied more softly. Was it revenge? I don't think he was evil. Paige saw change in Sophie. You've talked to him a lot, haven't you? He's changed your mind. Don't accuse me. I'm not accusing Sophie. What is it you want, Paige? I want to know if he's changed. After his escape. And I've always wanted justice. And I've come to think he doesn't deserve to rot in jail. Paige looked away. She'd never expressed her doubt out loud this strongly. Sophie seemed deflated, her anger mostly withdrawn, and she stared at Paige. I can't believe you. He can't risk contacts with you. You mean a lot to me, Sophie, Paige said. I don't want to upset you. Sophie drained her wine glass and set it back on the table. But you have talked to him, haven't you, Paige said. Sophie sighed. All right, yes, I talked to him. Is he all right? I think so. I don't know where he is, and I don't think you can find him with phone records. His calls are untraceable. He told me not to try. More than once, then. Sophie didn't respond, and when Sophie avoided looking at her, Paige was sure. She talked to him regularly. He uses some prepaid, no-contract, disposable phone, Sophie said. I do the same now. Billy and Ann, too, Paige asked. Sophie's silence again made Paige sure that Hiram had contacted them all. Look, Sophie began, we talked for a long time. He wants his side known by the world. He's been working on the memoir. I'm the only person he thinks can help and that he's willing to trust. He wants it published. I said I'd help. I believe he has done a lot of wrong, but I don't think he's guilty of murder. Who can you contact? Paige asked Sophie. I asked the agent who published my books. I could make his memoir part of the biography, Paige said. She wasn't exactly sure how that would work, but she knew it could make more than a few editors in different houses envious. You wouldn't let it be his own. You've hated him, Sophie said. Never hated, Paige said quickly. You have. You never gave Dad chances to defend himself. Always aggressive. He deserved better, Paige agreed. Let me make amends. He's talked to me about it, Sophie said. About quality of existence. About dying with dignity, not like some rotting tomato. And he talked about punishment, too. He said he believed the living have the right to revenge the killing of innocent people. People who brought undeserved pain and suffering to so many. Did he mean assisting in Jeremy's death? Isn't that against your principles, Paige persisted? I told you I'm not sure now. I think he thought it out and made a decision, and I don't think it was all revenge. I think he thought about Jeremy's condition if Jeremy was conscious. Jeremy must have been terrified. I'd like to talk to Hiram, Page said. I told you. He'll never talk to you or anyone he doesn't trust. That's why he wants me to find a publisher for his memoir. He's determined to build a new life without anyone knowing where he is, even family. If I could handle his memoir, I could help him get his points out. With a biography? I think so. I've thought a lot about it as I learned more for the biography, Page said. I think the public reaction was unfairly harsh, and I think much of what he was accused of in his career was often judged without just consideration by unbiased minds, and people embraced rumor and speculation to vilify him. 
It affected his euthanasia trial, too. He was targeted by activists, and any truth was distorted by their wants. I don't think he was ever evil, Sophie said again, as if convincing herself. I'm beginning to think so, too, Paige said. He lacked caring sometimes, lacked consideration of the views and feelings of others. I do believe that. But I don't think he intentionally did harm to Jeremy for selfish reasons. He wants money, Paige, or family. He can't free up what's been frozen by the courts. He wants outright sale, not an advance on royalties. I'll pay, Paige said. As much as a traditional publisher? As much as I can get, please call him. Not possible, he calls me. Let me know, then, what he thinks. Next morning, Paige contacted Max Roja. You were right, Paige said. He's talking to Sophie, and I think probably the other children, too. Great, Max said. But they won't help. He's careful. Sophie has no idea where he is, and you can't trace his calls. I'll work on it. We'll get him. At least he's probably in the States. And with Sophie's contact with him, we've got something to go on. For months, Sophie continued to try to find a new publisher. There was no interest, just the dismissals, unreturned phone calls, and unanswered query letters. With time, the interest in Hiram was waning. She considered Paige again. But Hiram wasn't interested in Paige. She doesn't have the smarts. And writing is not her career, he said. I'd rather you self-publish it. I can't do that, Sophie said. Paige said she would use a number of editors to remain objective. She said she'd make it right. Hiram was not convinced. Finally, frustrated and impatient, Sophie told her father by phone on his next call. I'm sick of dealing with this. Tell Paige what you want. Give her the manuscript. Hiram told Sophie to keep trying to publish. He'd think about Paige and her biography. Chapter 53 From Phoenix, Hiram went briefly to Santa Fe, then angled northeast to travel up the east coast, briefly scouting out the coast of South Carolina and North Carolina. But something about the Southern culture made him doubt the security of a false identity. He felt an inherent gossip sentiment, everybody wanting to know everything about everyone, and with an annoying, prying mentality. And it's not always friendly or genuine, but more that knowledge will diminish you as a person, especially if you're not from the families immersed in the culture for a few generations. There is a definite need to destroy if you've been suspected of being from the Northeast. The sociologist would probably deny it, Hiram thought, but it was true. This dislike of the unknown could eventually bring about scrutiny and reveal him. He moved through the populated states of New York, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. He briefly looked at New Hampshire and Vermont, but felt both too insular and rustic. He felt paranoid about how others might feel about his inherent standoffishness. He traveled to Maine, along the coast, which was dependent on summer tourism for its economy. He found many people from away who commonly spent only a few months, or even only a few weeks a year in the area. People from away they were, PFAs. And PFAs were treated with a friendly attitude, but a certain disinterest that seemed to supersede suspicion. 
PFAs bought property. Property needed to be maintained in PFA's absence. And they often bought boats and arts and crafts and had parties with other people from away, all adding to the economy that would propel locals through what could be long, icy winters and lives. Hiram decided on Russell's Point, a historic town where much of the property was owned by folks from away. The town was heavily dependent on tourists and a renowned shipbuilding industry that produced handcrafted ocean-sailing yachts for competition. He rented a cottage on the harbor. He paid cash until he could open two bank accounts with his new identity. He bought and registered a used car, obtained a driver's license, and tested his passport at the Canadian border on a drive to Quebec City. He stayed weeks before moving on. He joined the Y and used the health club. He studied local history and lore at the college in Brunswick. He invited the attractive widowed professor of history, a native of Portland, to a concert and dinner. He toured the area on local water tours, examined surrounding cities of Camden, Booth Bay Harbor, and Wiscasset, went whale watching, spent weekends in Rockland and Damariscotta. He met people at church and introduced himself to neighbors. He opened a mailbox. He made it clear he was looking for a place to retire in a few years and wanted this to be his permanent residence someday. He would be spending free time here when he could. Then he drifted on, closing up the cottage and hiring a maintenance man recommended by a neighbor. He talked to the sheriff about security for his new place, but really worked to make a friend with a generous donation to the department retirement fund. He left only information about his new identity, nothing to relate him to the past. He'd grown a full beard again while traveling. He flew or took trains now and frequently stayed in motels and hotels, using his Seattle identity and paying with credit cards. He wanted to continue his movement and let his new identity in Maine settle to test his potential exposure. He would circle back in a few months at least twice to become a familiar part-time resident, friendly and above suspicion. In Maine, he was clean-shaven establishing his new appearance that was barely reminiscent of his former self and younger than his actual age. He would never relax, but he was feeling more comfortable. He was ready to try a normal existence, with an identity as permanent as he could make it. At the end of the summer in the Northeast, he headed for New Orleans. He planned to let his new identity in Maine continue to mature until it was as safe as he could make it. He'd settled down in a year or two. He aimed for winter, when the native populace was pretty much inside for a number of months, and he could make his permanent presence gradually noticed. Chapter 54 New York Max Roja Almost two months before Hiram arrived in New Orleans, Max delivered a copy of her official report on McDowell for her clients, Paige Sterling and Harmon Tressler in person at Tressler's office. Honestly, we don't know where he is, Max said. We can't find a trace of him on the West Coast. We know he made three short trips to New Orleans over the years on medical business. I don't think he'll risk being around medical personnel. It's a long shot, but he's played the harmonica for a long time and probably still does. He's a pro-level musician, he had a riff on his answering machine for a number of months a few years ago, and you can hear the quality. And we know he sat in New York once with Swampwater Hopkins. 
He might be playing in New Orleans, and we're going to spend a week looking for him. We're going to contact most of the musicians on the streets and in the clubs. I'm going down personally. Tressler's gaze to Page said he doubted Max's competency. New Orleans. Max had a composite list of New Orleans musicians from the musicians' unions, ads, and newspapers. She knew her skills to be better than most and thought New Orleans had music contacts that were the most reasonable way to nab McDowell if he was there. Meticulously, she contacted those musicians on the list she could find and asked about McDowell. Number 38 of the list was singer Maria Petulant. Maria remembered Hiram well, but hadn't seen him since the night she became enraged and he scared the shit out of her at a plantation upriver. More than a couple of years, she said. Max gave Maria a card with a number to call. She'd pay for valuable information, Max told Maria, and she gave Maria $50 to entice Maria to get in touch if she saw or heard anything about McDowell. Three weeks later, Maria was in the quarter for the gay parade. She and her girlfriend had caught a bite at the Camellia Grill and had walked up to the cathedral to avoid the crowds already gathering along the parade route before turning left to go to Armstrong Park. She liked her drummer friend, and although she was a little uncomfortable when he waved from a float swaying a two-foot-long erect papier-mâché penis on a four-foot broomstick, she pointed him out with pride to her friend. She heard a harmonica. Wait, she thought. It's that shitty doctor dude. She stopped her friend to listen. For her, a musician's sound was unmistakable, more memorable than a face. The weird bastard freaked her out upriver in that plantation hotel. She told her friend how creepy he was, but he played a sweetheart with a lot of soul he didn't seem to really have. With her friend in tow, she followed the sound back toward the old Jack's brewery across the tracks, but the sound was gone, and she found no one. As soon as she was home, she called Max Roja. I heard him, she said to Max on the phone in New York. Where? Riverside of Jackson Square. Did he recognize you? I didn't see him. I just heard him. I looked, but he was not playing where I heard him. Okay, Max said hesitantly. Do I get the $500, Maria asked. If the tip turns out to be good, Max said. Max called the feds. Chapter 55 New York Page Page met Perry Rosenthal at the Tasty Grape in Soho. He looked the same as he had when she last saw him six months ago. He'd been solicitous on the phone. As lonely as she had been while working on the biography, and with almost no social life, she was pleased to hear his voice and anticipated being with him again for the first time ever. They sipped Manhattans before ordering. Rosenthal asked how she was doing. Well, I've missed production, presenting on TV, Page said. He paused too long for her comfort. He was choosing his words carefully, causing an uncharacteristic delay. Are you close to getting McDowell, he asked. No real leads yet, she said. Is that why I'm here, McDowell? He's still big news, Perry said. That's what I don't like about you, Perry. You're dishonest. McDowell's not the reason I ask you, he said. I'm making conversation. Rosenthal closed his eyes and thought for a moment. Then he leaned forward. I've missed you, Paige, he said. 
Page couldn't think of a response. She wanted someone to miss her, even Perry Rosenthal. Perry's face intensified. I mean it, Page. I think about you a lot. What exactly does that mean? You missed me. Having you around. Page became more flustered. What did you like about me that made it nice to have me around? I've always admired you, he said. Page laughed. She was nervous now. I'm attracted to you, he said. Page was still skeptical. Amara's still with you? Page asked. It's different now, Page. She's on staff, but I don't see her much anymore. Always accidental. Is he being straight with me, she thought. She was beginning to hope so, more than she thought was wise. Yet, she yearned for more sincerity than she believed Perry was capable of. They ordered food and talked about their lives alone and with each other. Paige was awed at the intimacy of the moment. Nothing confrontational, no suspicions, no external world explorations. They just talked about themselves and each other. After they ordered dessert, Rosenthal turned serious. Paige, he said, let's start on a special. Do we have enough on McDowell for an hour special? She was immediately suspicious again. Was this his real purpose? But she was thrilled by the prospect. About life on the run, she said. How he disappeared, remained obscure for so long. How he's avoided state and federal agents. We'd fill in with images where he might be, people he would depend on for help and silence. You could interview those who might be involved, if not for facts, for opinions. I have enough for more than one special. Will Victor and Condoleezza be available? Of course, Rosenthal said. She didn't hesitate. I'll make it good, Perry. I've missed work. They ordered after-dinner drinks, and Perry turned serious. I didn't ask you out just about the special, he said. Trust me, I wanted to be with you again. Against her will, she welcomed his interest in her, even with the risk that insincerity might humiliate her and make her the fool. She was unappreciated as a woman these days, and she wasn't sure, with her feelings muddled, if she was handling this right. Deep down, she still didn't like Rosenthal. Do you believe me, he asked. She smiled faintly. Chapter 56 Paige sent her latest draft of the biography to Harmon Tressler. He scheduled a meeting. What do you think, Paige asked. A good work, Tressler said. I need to have more about the escape, don't I? It's not all that. I don't like the narrative tone. It has to be less slanted, Tressler said. It's not slanted, Paige said. It is, Paige, and there's a lot of narrative attitude in it. It's not consistent. I report the history, Page said. It's judgmental, and it changes. Guilty, not guilty, not good. And I do think you need to talk to him and learn about his life as a fugitive. It's been more than a year now. Almost three, Page said. How has he done that? It's what people are focused on. We'll need it. We know he was in Montana. I'll try to get people to talk, but I'm not hopeful. Good. And I want to assign one of my best senior editors to help you with the writing, Charles Gibson. This is my book, Harmon. He's not taking over. I just want the editing process active now, while there is still much formative writing to be done. 
Well, it's hard to be enthusiastic, Paige said. And it's a damn good book. And you need to get started on illustrations, too. Photographs? Historical, of course, but get contemporary updates. I think we need four sections of photographs, at least to support the different phases of his life. Coming of age, Paige asked. Schooling, career, nemesis, that sort of emphasis. I'd emphasize Nepal, too. I'd get photographs of that woman he lived with over there. His daughter is a professional photographer, Paige said. She has thousands of shots on life in Nepal. Hey, bring her to the production meeting tomorrow, 9 a.m. Would you hire her, Paige asked, if I like her. Sophie rescheduled portrait sessions at the studio and the next morning met Paige in front of her publisher's office on Avenue of the Americas. You nervous? Paige asked. Sophie shrugged, but she could feel her heartbeat. She wanted more than what she was doing now with her career. They sat around a large, oval, darkly stained mahogany conference table. Tressler at one end, Paige and Sophie to his right, and Charles Gibson to his left. A secretary sat behind Tressler in a straight-backed chair to take notes. Tressler outlined what he wanted to accomplish in the meeting. Sophie glanced at Charles Gibson when she could without being rude. Late thirties, sandy-colored hair parted on the right. Professionally cut, but with a front lock that seemed to stubbornly flop down on his forehead. She disliked his privileged look, old New York with deep family wealth and the heritage of stellar political careers. He dressed in a charcoal English wool pinstripe three-button suit with a pale lavender button-down shirt and an odd plum-colored tie with a Mondrian-like design. He sat straight in the chair, his hands clasped in his lap. He looked athletic, in control, yet in no way tense. Sophie had to discipline herself not to stare at his hazel eyes, which were intent but quizzical. It was the touch of arrogance in his demeanor and his speech she didn't like. She didn't envy Paige for having to work with him. You don't have to see the daily drafts, do you? Paige was saying to Charles. Weekly drafts with copies to me, Tressler interrupted. Sophie felt Paige's pain from the sound of her voice. Tressler and Charles were taking control. Tressler asked Sophie questions about her photography. Sophie showed him examples of her work in Chicago and Nepal. Tressler wanted to start composing the photographic sections and start taking photos of workplace, family, property, favorite recreational spots, he said. He emphasized that in the biography they would be supplementing contemporary shots with all the historical photos they could find. Isn't it too early to choose? It will depend on text emphasis, Page said. We're not that definitive yet. I want excessive redundancy, Tressler said. Can you begin? Tressler asked Sophie. Sophie was pleased she'd been chosen. She nodded. Page, you get with Charles to suggest shots needed and to research historical shots, Tressler said. Sophie, you can work with our illustration department. Could I work alone on this? Sophie asked. Tressler looked at Charles. Does that work? he asked Charles. Charles nodded. Work with Charles in editing existing photos and with composition of the photos still needed, Tressler said. Tressler closed the meeting. Other staff members entered the room as Sophie and Paige left. Well, that was short, Sophie said. We're not important in their schemes of success, 
Page said. Chapter 57 Sophie and Page went to meet Charles Gibson at his office. He led them to a room with projection equipment in the art department on the 16th floor. Page had brought copies of the current manuscript draft. Sophie had photos on her computer that she could Bluetooth project onto a screen. All had computers with internet connections and direct access to a color printer. Page had highlighted in the manuscript a number of sections she wanted to discuss for illustration. I think the Foundation Gala would be a good source, she said. When was that, Charles asked. Oh, a couple of years ago. Do you have the photos? There were many photographers there and many celebrities, Page said. We'll contact the Foundation, Charles said. I'll assign an investigator to track down resources, and you'll need to find what we might need. I'll look for sources we might use, Charles smiled. Is there a page size you prefer formatting, he added, looking at Sophie. I can work with what you suggest, Sophie said. We'll have to credit all photos from other photographers, Charles said, and if we Photoshop any changes, even collages or montages, we'll have to have written permission to publish the change. I'll need legal advice for the permissions, Sophie said. I'll send legal with it when you make the arrangements. Do everything right up front so that we don't have to backtrack when we're in production. The following week, Paige called Sophie. Hi, free for dinner tonight? Paige asked. Oh, can't tonight, Sophie said. It was the first time she had ever turned down an invitation from Paige. Saturday night, then? Paige asked. I can't. Do you have a boyfriend? Paige laughed. Sophie felt bad. She had no friends, really. Paige was her only social contact these days. I'm rowing in New Jersey, she said. You? With a crew? Sophie resented the demeaning tone. I'm competing next month for the first time. I'll get back in touch, Sophie said. Two weeks later, Paige called again and asked Sophie to go with her to Lincoln Center. I can't, Paige. I'm going sailing with a friend. Where? Paige asked. Long Island. With a friend? Paige sounded as if she didn't believe Sophie could have a friend. Sophie got angry. She didn't like Paige's new imperious tone. She's a good athlete. Works in ticket sales at Radio City Music Hall, Sophie said. She was making friends now. She was busy getting healthy. She'd submitted some of her photographs to national competitions, and she was feeling good about herself. God, it felt like breathing in spring air at sunrise. What does your father have to say? Paige asked. Really, Paige, I've told you. I still need to talk to him about the biography, Paige said. Sophie hung up. Sophie talked to Hiram the next day. She still wants to talk to you about her biography about you and I think she wants your approval. I've thought about it, Hiram said. I can't turn it over to Paige Sterling. She's not exactly a friend. She has her faults, Dad, but I think she's changed her ideas about you and Jeremy. Changed, he asked. I don't think she thinks of it as murder anymore. What do you think, he asked. It's complex, the reasons, but I don't think it was criminal. I'm never exactly sure, Hiram said. It wasn't all revenge and punishment. Jeremy really had no life. 
And after what he did, he didn't have any rights to ruin Anne's life any more than he had already. Well, neither Paige or I think it was murder. You like Paige now? Well, she irritates me at times, but I do like her. She's certainly dedicated, and I think she tries to be an honest journalist in a pit full of dishonest vipers. I can't forget she came down hard on me about the foundation and the research, Hiram said, and the book on the Paul heirs. Sophie held her response. She wasn't sure she knew the truth. Any word from the publisher, Hiram asked? I can't charm them now that they put my book on the shelf. I checked with my publisher again for the Asia series. What happened, he said. They said my photos were great for mostly female readership of coffee table books 10 to 15 years ago. And times have changed. Photos now need an edge, need the tension of fear and pain of victims and slavery, not finding beauty in the ugliness of their world. That beauty is only in the lens of the photographer, not in the reality of their existence. I didn't agree with all that. I said I gave them the cultures that isolated and imprisoned women. They said they didn't need the haughty, beautiful, vapid stares of illiterate mothers of ten children surrounded by natural wonders. They needed the sense of a Holocaust survivor, or a rape victim, or a mother grieving the loss of her only son on a purposeless battle mission. They couldn't make money with the photographic displays on any subject anymore, Hiram said. Publishing is not concerned with work of quality, only a profitable sales potential for the outrageous and provocative. Don't be discouraged. Keep pushing them. I'm sure they're not going to change their minds about your book either, Sophie said. Did you look for other possibilities? Hiram asked. No one is interested. Page may be your last resort. Chapter 58 New York Max Roja Weeks later, Max Roja listened to a recording in her office of Sophie and Paige having a conversation in Central Park near the Metropolitan Museum of Art the day before. An agent trailing Sophie easily captured all that was said with advanced technology effective at recording from distances of up to 200 yards. He still wants a commercial mainstream publisher, Sophie said. I've given up. A publisher you can't find, Page said. Did you still tell him I want to work with him on the biography? He still doesn't trust you, and he's so proud of his memoir, Sophie said. Did you tell him you could trust me? There was a pause in the recording, where only the rustling of the wind in the trees could be heard. I'm not sure I do trust you, Page, Sophie said. We're friends, Sophie. Really? You're still working with independent investigators with direct contact to federal agencies. You know more about my father than the family does. Paige didn't respond right away. Max smiled to herself listening to the taped conversation that was a fraction of all Sophie's conversations investigators had recorded, analyzed, and were on file. But this interchange between Paige and Sophie might pry loose special information. You can't convince me you won't betray him, Sophie said. You haven't changed. You're using me just as you used my father for your own personal gain. After another long pause, Paige said, I'm not working with anyone now to help in his apprehension, she said. I don't believe you, Sophie said, and I'll warn father whenever I can. 
Not good, Paige, Max thought, marking the recording for further use when next talking to Paige. Don't reveal sensitive data. Just be your friend. You are my friend, Sophie, Paige said. I love being with you, and I love what you do and how successful you've been. You're using me. I don't know how to convince you it's not true. Oh, my, Max thought. Paige Sterling hasn't been straight with me. Don't send him back to prison, Sophie said. I will never do that, Paige said. That's a lie, Max thought. She grinned to herself at Paige's lie, at knowing everything that was going down. Paige would reveal McDowell, whether she meant to or not. That can't be true, Sophie said. There was again silence on the recording except for an approaching group with hysterical laughs and frequent swear words. When the group had passed, only the breeze in the trees was heard. Finally, Paige spoke, her voice cracked with emotion. It's not true, Sophie. My boss does want the interview. But now I only want to help your father get his word out. Okay, Max thought. Tell her what you want, as long as you let us catch the creep. Sophie seemed to be crying. I can't believe you. What about the TV special? You'll make a bundle of these cards, she said. I don't think I'll ever finish that, Paige said. I'm not sure we won't present bias as truth. I'm not going to do that anymore. That's going a little too far, Max thought, unsure of Paige's value now. But Max was pleased with the performance of her new spy technology. This ends Episode 3 of McDowell, a novel by William H. Coles. You'll find links to all episodes of McDowell and the iTunes Google Play feeds at storyandfictionpodcast.com. I'm Bill Coles, your host, and this podcast is produced by storyandliteraryfiction.com. Thanks for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.